Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, double episode week this week, clearing out the pre-pandemic interviews. So Mark Wilson from Jet, you might have heard that earlier in the week. If you haven't, go back and check that out. That's a brilliant chat with a brilliant man. And today, my final pre-pandemic podcast with Michael Schaefer. Now, uh, Michael is a brilliant uh, emerging, I was going to say young, but emerging stand-up comedian. He has an incredible story about his battle with testicular cancer that we talk about a lot in this episode, but we talk about a lot of other things as well. Uh, the show that he did about that was called 5050. And if you want to see Michael do stand up after listening to this, and I do highly recommend it, he's going to be a superstar and he's already a really fantastic act. Uh, his show 5050 is available for download on his website. So Michael Schaefer, M I C H A E. L-S-H-A-F-A-R.com. If you go there, you can find a link to that show, and that's a great way to support a young comedian during this time as well. So Michael Schaefer is his name. He's the guest on the podcast today, and I am absolutely wrapped to have him here. He had a bit of a cold at the time. It was pre, pre-COVID, pre and it wasn't COVID. Uh, he's a little scratchy in this interview, but um, I still think it's a really brilliant chat, and I love the opportunity to have a catch up with Michael. If you enjoy this podcast and you've liked it coming out more regularly, uh, then patreon.com slash philosophy is the place to go. We have about 500 odd uh, subscribers at uh, patreon.com slash philosophy now, which is amazing. If we could get to a thousand at the rate we're doing, basically, if we could double what we have right now, this podcast would exist by itself uh, with the advertising that we get and with the Patreon uh, subscribers. We would be able to put out the podcast at least once a week, but uh, possibly even twice a week. So I understand this is a pretty tough time for most people. So if you are listening to this and you can't afford to be a Patreon subscriber, I absolutely appreciate that. But if you can afford, all we need to do is find another of the, say, 100,000 more of you that listen to this podcast regularly, um, if we could find about another 500, uh, this podcast would finally stand on its own two feet, be able to pay everybody and have a little money there to uh, travel around, do some extra interviews, put up some extra content, all that sort of stuff. So if that's something that you would like, something you would enjoy, and also I'm going to work on some exclusive Patreon bonus content. But if you are on the Patreon page for as little as a dollar a month, you will get access to all that. Plus, you can send me a message, suggest a guest, give me some feedback on one of the interviews that you liked or something that came up in one of the interviews that you want to add something to. Patreon.com slash philosophy is the place for that. Uh, thank you very much for your support of the podcast during this time. Share it around, tell your friends, and I hope you enjoy this one with Michael. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, someone I don't know today, which is nice. I mean, I, I feel like I, I know everybody who comes on this podcast in a way because the reason that they're on the podcast is because I heard them on something or I saw them on something or I've been following them on Twitter or I read their book. So I always feel like I know people a little bit before they come in. But this is the first time that I've 
had a conversation with, hung out with uh, today's guest. So who are you? Hi, I'm Michael Schaefer, comedian, writer from Melbourne. And a little bit croakier than uh, you are normally, Michael Schaefer. Yeah, yeah. I lost my voice a couple of days ago, but uh, it's back for this. Yeah, well, it's, I, I feel like you, it's even given you a bit of a deeper kind of radio voice today. Do you think so? Yeah. Yeah, I think I sound uh, more masculine and more perhaps intimidating, which I think is yeah. nice because I'm actually quite a sensitive yeah, but you've brought some intimidation to the table yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, how long have you been doing comedy for? Uh, coming up to six years this year, yeah. And so where do you feel like you're at in that journey of being a comedian? Because it's interesting, I think, because, you know, six years is long enough that you're doing it now, yes. right? Like you've kind of, it's it's in that bit where you're like, oh, maybe this is... This is really what I might be doing with my life, you know, about six years in. Yeah. Normally the people who've been tourists, who've been dipping their toes in the water, have, have gone by six years. Yes. I've, I mean, I feel like an absolute baby in the whole scheme of things, just because, you know, look at guys like you and, you know, heaps of other guys who've been doing it for 25 years, and it's just incredible to think how much more time, you know, you guys have been doing it for, and it's just errors that I wasn't even aware of in comedy you know so I feel like an absolute baby but I'm also at the point where it's a weird kind of transition point where it's transitioned from being a hobby into oh this is like my career and this is now what I'm doing as a job which I imagine I you... like that career and job both clearly had question marks in yeah. them, the way that you said them. <laughs> I've always been skeptical of having like a job and a career because yeah. like I could have been a lawyer and like I wasn't. So I've just always um, rebuked the idea of having to have a job and a career. That's why I kind of got attracted to doing comedy. I mean, comedy is one of those things where it can be like running away to join the circus, mm. but of course eventually, if you, you know, hang out at the circus long enough, you start working at the circus. And yeah. You're like, oh, hang on, this is a job. I just, I have a day job. It's just in a tent at yeah. a circus. And, it's bizarre. Yeah, and, and, and that's why I asked, really, where you felt like you are at. Because, I you know, normally about where you're at, you've done a couple of, you know, very, you know, uh, you know well, where tell me a little bit, paint the picture, because I'm getting to know you, but also the audience is getting to know you. Yeah, so sure. let's start with the comedy story first, because I like to talk about comedy. I'm not sure how the audience of this podcast love when I jump into talking about comedy. But well, I think they've stuck around until now, so they probably like I'm comedy. I'm most chat. fascinated by. So I want to tell me about where you're at. Like, tell me how many shows have you done? How did you get to here? Like, let's start with where you're at, and we'll go backwards to how it started. Yeah, sure. I mean, like where I'm at now, I'm coming up to my fourth solo show this year. So it's nice to be. Uh, it's. I feel like when you start doing solo shows, that's when you feel like, oh, I'm a proper comedian because now people are coming to see me. Whereas, whereas when you're doing a showcase, like they're coming to see everyone and you just happen to be on there. So, yeah, so now I feel like oh, I'm starting to build up a bit of an audience, you know, in a few different cities, which is nice. And, you know, people are, you know, coming back to see me again and seeing how I'm changing and improving and evolving, which is nice. Um yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at from the stand-up side of things. So tell me where you are, like what what work are you doing this year? So you're about to tour, or have you already done shows of this? Yeah, so show? I started touring this new show, yeah. uh, which called is called Getting Better. Mm -hmm. I did a show. I did the first one in Sydney a few weeks ago, and then did a week in Perth, two weeks in Adelaide. I got a month in Melbourne, a couple nights in Sydney, and then I'm doing Edinburgh for the first time. Oh, the year wow! Two. Yeah, which is just terrifying. So I had to do the. Uh, 
venue deposit the other day and did this very large international transfer. <laughs> and me and my girlfriend are like staring at the computer just being like, are we sure this is the right thing to do? But wow, the good news is it's Edinburgh. You're guaranteed to make that money back. Well, exactly. I mean... <laughs> Never heard of anybody losing money at Edinburgh, so no, you'll be fine. I've heard it's kind of yeah. like a gold mine over there. No, it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Just go over, scoop the cash out of the ground. Especially for people yeah. who don't have profiles. Yeah. I've heard that you can that, make a lot well, of money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and in an Olympic year. Yeah. That's what they say. If it can clash with the Olympics, <laughs> then that's really the year to make some money. Yeah, so I look, I'm really optimistic about it. You know, I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Probably be moving back in with my parents in September, you know what I mean, after this conversation. Um, so, no, but that's very exciting because going to Edinburgh for the first time, for people who don't follow comedy, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival yeah. is essentially the biggest comedy festival in the world. Now, the Fringe Festival itself is a giant, you know, festival that arts, you know, plays, you know, you know poetry, whatever, you yes. know, but there is a stand-up comedy component of it yes. that is well over, you know, well, thousands of shows these days and... You know, so it's the big time. It is the Olympics of, you know, entertainment in a way is being able to take your own show to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and, you know, like you suddenly in a different country and, you know, you've got 22 shows or, you know, 22 shows in 23 days. 27, or but, you know. 27 yeah. shows in 28 days. Are you having a day off? Because they, they I don't make think it I work have a day every, off. Yeah, so you should have done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, by doing more shows, I'm going to make even more yeah, money even with more it. Money. So, That's you know. right. Yeah, good point. Actually. Do you know, I'm actually doing, you know how you're meant to get Mondays off mm. in Melbourne. Yeah. I just said to them, can I just do Mondays? So I'm doing Mondays as well in Melbourne. And now whenever a comedian says to me, oh, I can't wait for my Monday off, I just call them a coward for taking a night off. So Well, I just do Wednesday to Sunday, mate. I take uh, Monday and Tuesday well, nights off. the pussy I'm sitting next to you right now. This yeah, crazy. well, I don't do Tuesdays because I don't work for cheap. <laughs> so I am not doing my show on a discounted night. Are you no, doing preview you. shows? Yeah, no, I do. Okay. Shows. Like, that's a, that's a, a joke. But I um, that what makes you want to do the show every night? I where does get, that come from? I want to get better at comedy, mm. and I just know whenever I'm doing solo shows, I mean, what else would I be doing? Like, I'd just be at home. Like, I'd rather be out working. Go and see some other shows. I'll see some other shows, but everyone has Mondays off anyway. Oh. So I'm like, well, I might as well do a show because I'm not going to be doing much else. I mean, I'll regret this in a couple of weeks, but right now I'm really happy about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, as long as you don't do something like lose your voice, <laughs> yeah. you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how could that happen twice? It's not going to happen twice. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, no, but I, I, I guess the question I'm asking is the difference between wanting to do it every single day and every single moment, which is absolutely probably a great thing to be wanting to do when you're six years in. Mm. You know, having a voracious appetite for being on stage and getting better as quickly as you can is a really great thing. When you get older, you're like, you know what? I think my Wednesday show will be a bit better if I've had a rest on a Tuesday. Yeah, you know? I completely relate to yeah. that too. Um, so, uh, but that's where you're at in regard to wanting to just do shows. Like, you know, because going to Edinburgh, you know, I don't know if people picked up that we were possibly joking about the <laughs> amount of money you can make in Edinburgh, uh, if that was too subtle for people. Yeah, it's a big, that in itself to say, I am going to go to this incredibly difficult, you know, festival on the other side of the world where I don't have any following. I'm going to probably have to fly for myself. I'm going to have to stay in some overpriced accommodation. I'm probably going to lose a whole bunch of money, even if I have a successful season, you know, um, that 
is is done by people who have a thirst for performing shows and getting better at comedy. So that it, it indicates to me that that probably is where you're at right now. Is that your driving principle? Yeah, I think that's. I mean, at the moment with comedy, my focus is just get. I mean, I call the show getting better for a number of reasons. Yeah, but that's my kind of drive and it's been my drive ever since I started doing it. Like I just started, when I started doing comedy, it wasn't like I'll do a gig here and there. I was just like, oh, I'm gigging every night, multiple times a night, just trying to work out the habits that you need to kind of get better. I started doing comedy in DC over in the US because yeah. I did like exchange uh, for like my final semester of uni and just it was good because like I just learned heaps over there just because like there's a really strong culture over there of like okay just gig every night record all your sets listen back just all the kind of basic stuff that uh, it was good for me to learn in my first few months of comedy uh different to here I mean to start out because I've played you know the US a lot but and, you know, I've certainly played some, you know, open mic nights as well, but I didn't start my career in the US. I went to the US, a well-established, you know, performer. So I, I didn't really see what it was like on that mm. ground level of the mics, you know, and, yeah. and what the culture is. Is the culture very much around that idea of get your five right, record it every night, polish it, go and do another gig? Yeah, pretty much. And because they don't have a festival culture over there, it's really about like everyone's kind of working towards basically doing a late night set almost. Right. So people are just like working up like, you know, bits really slowly and with so much attention. Like I saw one guy who was a great comic over there and I remember seeing him do probably the same bit every night for maybe two months while I was there. And it was, a, it was such a great bit. It was about like bananas and, and it was just a bit about bananas. Mm. And every time I saw it, it was just like an extra little line had been added to it. And I was like, oh, this guy's one day going to do that on Conan and has five minutes on bananas. You know, the way that Gary Gulman did his, <laughs> yeah. you know, state of abbreviations. Yeah, which is crazy famous. One bit. of the gr- all-time great. Yeah, maybe originals. the greatest bit yeah. ever written almost. So, But it's just funny watching that. And then in Australia, everyone's like, oh, I've got to write a new hour every year. So it's like, oh, you say something, it works right. I'm moving on. I've right, got another idea. It. Let's get going. Yeah. <laughs> just need another 58 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, you know, we'll say, we'll say hello, chat to a crowd. That's 57 minutes, you know. So that, that's the culture. Like, that's the cultural difference. Like there, yeah. I think there's a lot more like their bits are so much more honed because they're not trying to build up a new 55, 60 minutes every year, whereas here we are. So I think there's that difference. But And also the capacity to perform. Like you just could never have the time and fresh audiences to hone a bit like that in Australia. Yes. The idea of being able to do something 20 times, where? Because, like, if you went back to Spleen, you know, three weeks in a row, people yeah. will have seen you do that bit three weeks ago at Spleen. Yeah, I'm you doing know. Spleen tomorrow, and I'm like, yeah. okay, what did I do last time right. I was here? Because i got to do completely five different minutes of stuff. Yeah, we don't have that culture of you being able to get up and do the same bit and yeah. be like, oh, look, he's changed one line. Bravo. Yes. Well done, sir. They're yeah. like, no, no, no. Heard it, mate. <laughs> yeah, we get it. You like bananas. What, what else? What else you got? 100%. So, yeah. I mean, I think that was, like, kind of interesting to see. And then, but yeah, and then I I tried to kind of apply that when I came back to Australia, but then when I started doing like, you know, solo shows, being like, oh, I've got to get a new show every year. Then I was like, okay, let's start working hard and just turning over material. And that's kind of where the drive is, I think, also just to get on stage every night and try new stuff every night. And so that's your cycle at the moment is a new show every year. Have you done a new show every year for the last four years? Is yeah. That the... Yeah. Which I feel like is kind of, it's impossible to do, I think. Impossible. Yeah. I don't think it's like, I it's think that, madness. like Australian audiences think yeah. it's possible, but it's technically not. Like no. you see the guys who like do their mm. Netflix specials. Yeah. It takes them three years to three write years. at least. 
And then they tour it and do it like 200 times. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think Australian audiences don't understand mm. that you need to take three years to write a show. But also, like, they're kind of happy. If they like you, you can kind of get away with some kind of B material, which is usually <laughs> <laughs> usually makes up 45 minutes of the show. So and when he says B material, he means about Bs. 45 yeah. minutes on Bs. Yeah, that B yeah. material. He's been holding that since DC, <laughs> since 2014. I mean, it's crazy. Um, so getting better then, um, when you sit down to write getting better – and yes, as you mentioned, it has, you know, various meanings. Yeah. But the idea of getting better as a comedian, let's yeah. just start with that and then we can get to some of the other stuff. What is getting better as a comedian for you at the moment? Like what are your things that you're concentrating on? What are the yeah, the areas that you're working on, like where you're trying to grow? What What is that? Well, I mean, obviously it's just about being funny and just having laughs per, you know, minute, whatever. And okay. I think about that heaps. But I think over the last, particularly since I did my last year's show, 50-50, now I think in particular I'm trying to say something really original and different and I'm actually trying to probably challenge the audience more than ever before just because like last year I did a show that was um, all about how I almost died from cancer and that was such a hard show to do because as soon as you start talking about cancer and death like there's just tension in the room but I found a way to make the show work and to make people feel uncomfortable but also kind of laugh as well and I found that really interesting to play with. So I like the idea of saying something to an audience that makes them uncomfortable, but then having a punchline that's good enough to make them laugh, even if they feel uncomfortable or even if they might disagree with the content of your joke. So that's what I'm now kind of really trying to do more, which I think is really, I think it's more fun than just doing ordinary. I think the first few years of my stand-up was just pretty, you know, run-of-the-mill kind of comedy. So I'm trying to do something that's, yeah, more challenging i guess yeah well but sure almost dying of cancer it's easy to do that but yeah. you can't almost die of cancer every year for a show well at least like, i've been trying know, i mean I've, I've taken up smoking this year yeah. and so far it's different a long-term year, goal this is my new show, 6040. Yeah. It's like I do it like Adele. It's basically chances I have of living. By, like, yeah. t- by 2045, yeah. I'll just be like in a wheelchair connected to an oxygen tank being wheeled out and trying to do a show. Now, you, I mean, obviously, you, you've, you can't say I almost died of cancer without me then needing to explore it. But mm. I'm going to ask you if you have a philosophy first, because otherwise I'll, um, you know, get lost in the weeds of this podcast <laughs> and forget to ask you. Do you have a life philosophy? Is there a philosophy by which you live your life? I think I've probably got just two things, which is I've always, and this probably just jilted from my family, I've always believed that hard work will beat talent. That's always been my my first philosophy, which I think is something my family taught me. Um, and my second philosophy, which I've always believed and it really became more important to me when I went through cancer, was that everything is funny or everything can be funny anyway. That's something that I've always believed in became really clear to me when I was almost dying or when okay. I was dying. Yeah, so everything can be funny. Mm. And it's such a great uh, revelation because I think that so often in that society, we, when we're at our worst, we forget that this is all ridiculous. Mm. You know, that life itself is, is quite ridiculous. And so much of what we think is important and pretend is important in life is so funny. Mm. and ridiculous. Uh, so w- t- take us back. Let's tell the story then. Um, 
when do you when do you discover that you might have cancer? Tell where are you in your life when when this is happening? Well, I kind of it kind of starts, I guess, almost. So, twenty seventeen, I did my first comedy festival show, and I remember the final night of that show, I was feeling really unwell. And not, not unusual for the final night of the comedy festival. Not though. unusual. No. So I was like, it's just just that you know you've been running on adrenaline like for I've a month, cancer for twenty years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. And I remember like having a lot of back pain. It was like, I felt really crook, but like got through the show and whatever. Um, And then over the next six months, I just kind of progressively was feeling kind of unwell quite a lot. like a lot of colds and flu-y kind of things. Going to the doctor at this point, or these are all just things that you're like, oh, this is something I can treat with, you know, over-the-counter pharmacy and just rest and whatever. Yeah, 100%. I just thought, oh, I'll just, it's just a flu or whatever. And I'd feel better within a couple of days and then be okay. And then something would come back. And I had like chronic back pain as well, which I thought was weird. I'd never really had that before. I thought maybe I had bad posture or whatever. Hmm. And, uh, and my right testicle was getting bigger, but I just kind of, I don't know. I never thought it was, I never connected that all this stuff was connected. How, how much are you noticing your testicle getting bigger? Because like, I'm I'm not, when I, I've heard you, you know, talk about this previously and, um, you know, when you talk about the idea of the, the testicle getting bigger, how much bigger is it getting immediately because I don't think I would notice a slight change in the size of my testicle. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think like, I mean, sorry for all the information, but I feel like my right one always a bit bigger. Than it was slightly bigger anyway. Yeah. You're like, I think it's always been bigger. Yeah. I'm pretty sure like it's always, it well, always I couldn't been. tell you right now which of mine is like, there might be one that's bigger than the other. Well, one. you got to know, you got to know this stuff. This is, we're I trying mean, to raise awareness. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of every man listening to this podcast right now, being right like, now, I better check right, right now. now. If you're in a private place, yeah. if you you're in a private place. Yeah, if you're at work, maybe go to the bathroom. Yeah, but if you're listening in the car or whatever on the way to work at the traffic lights, what just... else are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Have a play. Excuse me, sir. <laughs> yeah, be in the car. Don't be like crossing <laughs> at the lights. I don't know. A lot of people called the police when I checked my testicles like, this morning. It was real. weird. <laughs> Just trying to check my health, mate. <laughs> You're on it. Yeah. So, how do you notice? How do you notice like your testicle getting bigger, and how much bigger is it getting? I guess I notice it getting bigger over a few months, but I don't know. I kind of just always thought, oh, it's nothing. Mm. Maybe that's just how it's. I feel like I've always been thinking like that's how it's always been. And also, I remember like testicular cancer being in the news because like Robbie Gray from Port Adelaide, mm-hmm. he got it, and Jesse Hogan for used to play for the Demons also had it. Yeah, that's right. And I remember thinking like, oh, like if I had cancer, like I would know, wouldn't I? I just remember thinking mm-hmm. that like I'd be, mm-hmm. I don't know, pissed. There'd be signs. I'd, be, I'd have a sore back or yeah. <laughs> in a large testicle. Well, I thought I'd be like, <laughs> I just thought I'd be like pissing blood or yeah. something. You know, you think it's going to be really overt, but it's not yeah. necessarily. Um, and so after six months of that and just putting it off, eventually I had a, I w- right at the project and I happened to have like a Friday off um, and I decided oh, I'll go to the doctor and you know, tell him that I've, I've been feeling unwell and just let him know. Mm. And it was really only off the back of my girlfriend pushing me. So she saved my life for sure. And yeah, I went to the doctor and it just the, you could kind of tell that like, I was like, oh, I've, I'm totally got cancer. Like, cause like he was so like, how does it, yeah. I, t- talk me through the doctor, like what's happening. They run some tests or does he just see how big it is and goes, you're in trouble, mate. <laughs> well, this is so it's cause like, he's always like, my doctor yeah. is always pretty, I don't know, like not alarmist at all. Right. Like I've known him never to be alarmist, but then when he like looked at my testicle and like saw my physical state, 
he I could just tell like from his change yeah. in attitude I was like oh I've totally got oh, cancer yeah. and and he was like oh you know it could be anything I was like I've totally it's cancer, it's, I've it? definitely I've cancer. got cancer so, why is it so obvious to me now when <laughs> <laughs> it should have been obvious to me all this time hundred percent hundred percent so why do you think that is by the way like what's do you, were you, are you just that natural sort of, you know, male cliche that, you know, you won't go to the doctor? Are you the sort of person that just thinks, you know, I will get over this? I am that, but also the I because I just am obsessed with I like just working and being busy, mm-hmm. I just thought like, I'll just work through this. Like yeah. it'll be fine. And I think that was also part of it too. Like I just did not prioritize my, I was 26 at the time. Like yeah. what would I, why would I think that anything bad could happen to me? You know, like nothing bad has really happened to me until then. So it just wasn't really at the forefront of my mind. Now it's like, now I think about my health all the time and I prioritize it over everything else. But at that stage of my life, not at all. So he sent me off, the doctor sent me off for an ultrasound and a blood test that confirmed straight away that I had stage three cancer, which was pretty bad. Uh, so at that stage it had spread to my lymph nodes and uh, all through my abdomen and my chest and uh, had about a hundred tumors just in my chest and lungs as well. So it had spread there too. Yeah. So look, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but that's not great. Not great. That's not, not great. It's not ideal. Because you don't want it to have spread. And no. Uh, how much of that spread could have been avoided if you had identified it earlier? I'm sure heaps. I mean, it's hard to say. Had I gone to the doctor six months earlier, I probably uh, – I ended up having to do – in total, I did 24 weeks of chemo, very intense chemo, five rounds of surgery, including a kind of a marathon surgery that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. And, yeah, had I gone to the doctor earlier, I reckon I would have reduced – the amount of chemo I had to do, I would have reduced the amount of surgeries I would have had to done. It would have been so much easier for me, for my family, for my partner. Yeah, so that's kind of a guilt I think I'll always live with. And it's just something that I guess I try to use to make sure I don't make that mistake again. So when a doctor tells you, do they tell you in person when you actually find out the news, the results, or is it an on-the-phone situation? I got a phone call, yeah. I remember I remember yeah. expecting the phone call because I was like, this is not going to be good. Right. Um, I remember I was just, it was a Friday afternoon and I was just like sitting at home uh, watching the news and then I got a phone call from my doctor and I was like, oh, this is the moment I find out I've got cancer. And then, you know, he says you've got cancer, come in and see me tomorrow and we'll, we'll chat about what's going to happen next. So, yeah, it's strange that it's a phone call. I don't know. I don't know why. I just always imagine you'd be, it'd be in person. I guess if they say, could you please come into the office, you go, <laughs> yeah, I've got cancer. Yeah. You might as well just tell me. Just I understand me you're not inviting me in to give you a high five and say everything's fine. Yeah. In fact, like, your ball is impressive. <laughs> it's growing on its own. <laughs> just going to say how healthy yeah, you are, actually. You are healthy. Man, you are the most masculine man I've yeah. ever met in my entire life. Yeah, you've got more. T- that's why your balls are so big, mate. It's fine. It's you're going to live, for, you're actually gonna live forever. <laughs> exactly. We've never, we've never seen anything like you. In fact, some of my colleagues just want to come in and get a picture with it, if you don't mind. Could you get it out? We'll so crop we can, you out, but yeah. we'll just want the, we want the testicle in the photo. We've never seen anything this big before. Uh, it might seem like a weird question to ask, but you've essentially, what do you know at, about testicular cancer at that point? What do you know about your chances of survival? Uh, you know, spoiler alert to people listening, you get through this, but yes. um, uh, what is your thought at the time? Do you know that 
what, what the consequences of this could be? Are you aware of it? Are you in shock? Are you dismissing it? Do you have an attitude of she'll be right? Where's your mind at at that point? Uh, at that point, I decided I'm not going to Google anything because I thought I'd rather just speak to like, I was being referred to an oncologist. Yeah. So I was like, I'll wait till I speak to my oncologist and then I'll have a better picture of what, you know, my odds are and everything. And that was probably a good thing. I think had I Googled it, I would have been very concerned. And there were points during the process, by the way, where I was Googling stuff and it did not help my no. state of mind at all. And I've realized that's a really bad thing to do because every person's cancer is really unique. Like everyone has like different odds. Um, but also, and like, you know, your odds are determined on how old you are, what's the state of the cancer, how do you respond to treatment, what treatment is available. So like, there's no point even like looking at stats and things like that because I think that... It's just, it's so broad and so generalized that it can't apply to an individual specific case. So you really have to go by what your oncologist is saying to you about your specific situation. So I didn't kind of Google anything or, or think too much what could happen next. I knew it was bad that it had spread, but I thought like, oh, other people, Lance Armstrong had testicular cancer. He's fine. I mean, not from a social perspective, Although but he's alive. A series of injections <laughs> yeah, yeah, with yeah. some human growth hormone. Yeah, yeah, I should yeah. be fine. I could ride the tour to France. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is yeah. good. I was doing some blood doping. I should be fine yeah. in the next few months. <laughs> but yeah, I went to see my doctor and the doctors also were interestingly, uh, interestingly enough, they didn't tell me like what my odds of survival were. Like I'd be like, okay, I've got like all these tumors and stuff and it's spread real bad. Like what are the odds? And they didn't say anything because... The odds weren't amazing. They were just saying like, oh, well, we would expect, we're going to start chemotherapy straight away. And we usually expect that people respond to the chemotherapy well. I don't know what that means, but I'm thinking that sounds positive. And I didn't know at the time, but about six months after I'd been diagnosed with cancer and about, which was, and that was at a period where my cancer was kind of under control. Like I wasn't in remission, but I was kind of under control. Um, I found out that my odds would about, were about 50-50 at the time of diagnosis. So that's what I named the show after last year. I mean, it'd be weird if it was the other way around, I, which was great because I'd already registered my comedy festival <laughs> show and it was called 50 well, I mean, what a coincidence. So, I mean, it's amazing, really. <laughs> I crossed my fingers with getting better this year, to be honest. Could have gone the other way. Could have gone the other Who way. Knows? Well, I mean, it's you kind of... You have to register early. That's yeah, the problem. That's the annoying thing, isn't it? I was like saying to the festival, mate, can we do this a bit later on? Because I might be 60-40 by the time we arrive. <laughs> Give me a few more weeks. Can we extend the deadline? Um, when you are told that you have uh, 100 tumours in your body, which is, a, you know, I think just it sounds serious. That's what yeah. I would say. To a, to someone who knows nothing about it, you just go, it's spread. Like These are all the basic things that we know, right? Yeah. You don't want it to have spread. That's and bad. 100 sounds like a lot of tumours, <laughs> yeah. right? And so um, girlfriend, uh Mum and dad, like, where are, where are they at in, in around this? Are, are they, do they expect this news coming? Have they been prepared for this? Is it something that you then have to call them and, and break it to them and let them know? Yeah, so after I got the phone call from my doctor on the Friday, I called up my girlfriend. We've been together for like 10 years and... Um, I said, oh, do you mind just popping over? We, we weren't living together yeah. at the time. Oh, but you I said, did, like, you didn't tell her on the phone? No. <laughs> you were like, I'm not doing this doctor shit. She's coming in for a consultation. Yeah. I'll, I'll send her a photo. Yeah. She'll be like, oh, you'll love this. Um, so I called her up yeah. and said, uh, you know, she was coming home from work. And I said, do you mind just popping over uh, just before, after work? So she came over and that was obviously, you know, really 
that's just a, you know, a brutal conversation. And my parents were overseas at the time. They were in Europe. They were in Spain. And, you know, it was a trip they'd been wanting to do for ages. They're probably halfway through the trip. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to tell them until I absolutely have to. So they can at least enjoy as much time of this holiday as they can. Uh, so I waited about at least a day or two. But then I found that I was going for surgery and starting chemo like straight away. And I was like, well, I'm going to need someone to kind of take care of me. So, yeah, I had to call them up. And, yeah, I mean, that's probably the hardest moment of my life I think calling up my parents and saying I've got cancer and trying to make them feel like it's okay yeah. that's kind of what happens when you go through something like that you just my thought process was I got to make sure everyone else around me is okay even though I'm totally not like I've got to make sure that everyone doesn't panic and just you know understands that I'm fine and I'll be fine and I was trying to manage everyone around me. Do you, did you think that you were fine and you were going to be fine or were you just telling people that you were going to be fine? Uh, no, I didn't think I was going to be fine. I thought it was a good chance I'll die. Yeah. But I'm not going to say that to the people I love. I said that once in a moment of weakness to my girlfriend and I regretted that immediately. So that was once, but I wouldn't do it again. Why Why do you consider that to be weakness? I mean, you know, if you were thinking that, you're the person who's sick, like, you know, to be able to be honest that you thought in that moment that you were going to die, I don't think is, is weakness. Why do you consider it to be weakness? I thought it was weak because it was it was only hurting her to say that. And she was super strong throughout the whole process. Yeah. Like, I don't really think she cracked it once. Like, she was just, like, unbelievable. So... It felt almost selfish. It's incredible though, that. isn't it? That like you are the person who, you know, and do you think this is an experience that is like, you know, quite common to people who have, you know, these sort of illnesses or do you think this was something about specifically about the way that you were dealing with your approach? You don't know. I don't know because no. I haven't spoken to, yeah. almost, I kind of almost deliberately avoid speaking to other people who have got cancer okay. or had their own experiences. I, Why? I guess because there's this belief that all, you know, there's this mm. belief that every cancer patient has stuff in common. Mm. And like we have like a very remote thing in common. Yeah. But everyone, like I said before, everyone's cancer experience is really unique and different. So I didn't feel like I could connect with other people who had cancer because everyone was going through such a different experience. So... I almost, I remember trying to connect with other people with cancer and then it was like, oh, I've got, like, I've got nothing to say to this person. I felt like I was speaking to them the way that uh, a healthier person would speak. We'd be like, oh, well, you know, stay strong and, you know, whatever. And it's like, I didn't feel like I had anything to say. It's hard to explain. No, I'm not no, sure if that, I'm being articulate. Uh, no, that's great. No, I mean, that's, I always love things that seem counterintuitive like i think that yes. that's a really interesting thing to hear and of course that makes sense because we do this so often in our societies we go well you've all got cancer you'll have something in common to talk to each yeah. other and you're like well hang on we've all got different types of cancer and even if we had the same type of cancer our experiences of those type like and why have you bonded like i'm already like this person's a stranger to me and the only thing we have in common is the worst thing we're both going through like, i think that's also part of it yeah. it's like why are we want to bond in a room about with our... people that i can bond with over something happy <laughs> 
and I can ignore having cancer for a bit. Yeah, hundred percent. Oh, hundred percent. But I think I guess one moment that kind of illustrates that for me now that I'm every time I talk about this, by the way, I think about a new moment which is interesting for me, something that I forgot about. But there was one time where I was going in, like I was doing like five days of chemo in a row and, you know, long days and, you know, I'm talking like 14, 15, 16 hours of being hooked up to chemo, just kind of whatever. It wasn't great. But I remember I was sharing a room with a guy who had uh, lymphoma and I remember like on the first day being like, oh, you know, I remember being like, oh, so obviously you've got cancer too because we're on the oncology ward together. And then he was like, oh, yeah, I've got lymphoma. And he said like, I can't remember whether it was the Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I remember doing that dumb thing where I was like, oh, but that's the, that's the, I think he said like, I've got Hodgkin's. I can't remember what he said. I don't, and I said, oh, that's the good one. Yeah. You know how there's always like a good one and a bad one? Yeah. Like, well, I'm an idiot. Like, why would I even... Even if it was the good one, why would right. you say that? And like, I don't even. I mean, re- neither of them are the good one. Neither of them are the one's good just, one. One's just worse than the other one. <laughs> but my point is, like, I was. <laughs> both, yeah, exactly. Right. But I just remember the being like. The good one is not having either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the good one is not having yeah, cancer. Yeah, that'd be me speaking to you, yeah. being like, oh, you've got the good one. That's yeah. the yeah. That's not cancer. Not cancer. Yeah, 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 yeah I do. You've nailed have it. The good cancer. <laughs> the, not, the one that I don't have yet. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a human being, and at some stage in my life, I probably will get cancer that's of some kind. That's probably true, sadly. But. But I remember like saying that I'm mean, like, but my point is like, I was relating to him the same way that someone without cancer would relate to him. Like I had yeah. no understanding Special of bond just because exactly. you suddenly have cancer yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I remember thinking like, Ugh, mm. what am I, I was just so like ashamed of, I put it down to go through chemo and I wasn't how, thinking How straight. big are your balls? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. your balls change size at all? <laughs> yeah, I had a photo of mine just carrying around the ward. People were very impressed <laughs> signing it. It was incredible. You probably heard of me, mate. <laughs> Probably seen the Guinness World Records, but uh, you've probably seen my work. Okay, so so most of the time you feel like you have to be strong for other people. Mm. Are you feeling strong yourself? Like how long is the, I mean, journey is such a horrible word, but yeah. from, from hearing that you have cancer to being confirmed that you have cancer through all the treatment that you end up going through, what's the time period we're talking about? Time period is about... I think 16 months mm. in total. So my final round of surgery was early Jan 2019. So a bit over a year ago. Mm. And uh, that was just to kind of like do a, because like, I found like they could say after you do chemo, mm. they do scans to see if there's still cancer left. But when they do scans, like they see like dots all over the place and they don't know if that's uh, active cancer or is it benign cancer or is it just scar tissue? Like it's three options pretty much. And so they have to go in and cut you open and do a biopsy to test what it is. So I had to do numbers of surgeries involving just that, just to do a test, not to even like necessarily cut anything out. So my final uh, of those types of surgeries was like early Jan last year. That was to do a biopsy of uh, a dot in my lung and that came back clear. So yeah, since then, I guess I've been in remission because all of the tests I've been doing have been showing that I don't have any, they can't detect any cancers since then. So I guess, yeah, my final round of surgery was early Jan last year. So in total, 14 months, let's say. So what's the, so now 14 months from what, full remission? Is that what it is? 14 months from diagnosis to like my final oh, yeah. medical yeah. intervention. But, but, the, yeah. but now it's been another, how long since? Then? Yeah, I'd say another, what, another 14 months yeah. since then. Right, much, yeah. okay. So, um I want to go back and go through some of actually what happened and what you had to go through, but I'm also interested in like the period of time now. So this 14 months, 
mm. like going from a bit of an all clear because you what do they give you like as in what do they tell you like what are the chances of this happening to you again or cancer reoccurring for you or these like what do they tell you at the end of like 14 months ago what do they tell you uh that i was looking great and that um, they did not expect the cancer to return because it is the kind of cancer that you can cure, which is fortunate. So testicular cancer is one of the... Oh, it's the good one. It's the good one, yeah. <laughs> it's, all, it's as good as not yeah. having cancer, basically. Yeah. That's... Ah, it's curable, mate. <laughs> it's fine. So uh, it is the kind of cancer that once they have cleared it, they're like super confident that you're not going to have it return. Or at least in my case, that was... I don't want to speak about yeah. on behalf of other people no, who've got no. testicular cancer, but I just know in my situation, that's kind of the situation. So that's what they basically say to you. But I still do scans and blood tests every four to six months. It's a funny paradox because they're like, oh, it's fine. You're fine. We don't, it won't come back. Please anyway, do a series of tests. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're doing a blood test in yeah. three months from now. I'm like, oh, yeah. why are we doing the blood test yeah. then if it's, you know, so. No reason. Yeah, yeah. Just want to. You don't worry your pretty little head about that. Yeah, we're, no, just, no, no. we're just going to do a Definitely won't stuff. come back. Anyway, yeah. we're going to do tests every three months. <laughs> Just to make sure just to make that sure it's definitely back. not coming back. Yeah, yeah. So how much then is it in your mind, I guess? Is the, you know, is there times where you don't think about it at all? Is it still ever present in your mind? What's crazy is like I don't think about it for like months at a time yeah. sometimes. And then like a week leading up to the scan, like I'll have it I'll in my diary, right? Oh, I've got a CT scan this week. That's when I'll be like, ah, oh, no, and that's when I'll become a hypochondriac and start um, feeling. Oh, I'm feeling a bit run down now. I'm a bit tired. What's that? If I got a lump, I don't. You know what I mean? Like I just start. Right. I remember. So I was doing. Um, I was doing some shows on a cruise ship a few months ago, uh, which I wouldn't recommend. But uh, I'll say this: sore throat might be coronavirus. <laughs> so I've been through worse. I'll be fine. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a good one. It's fine. It's, it's, a, good, it's, it's a good, a good one. <laughs> but. Um, I was doing some shows on a cruise ship and I noticed that like I had like a, like some little dots and bumps around like my ear and I had a swollen lymph node over here and I was like, oh no, like that's a symptom of cancer, like a swollen lymph node. Anyway, I was panicking and then I went to, we docked in Sydney and I like rushed to a GP and, um, and he looked at it and he goes, oh, it's just herpes. Yeah. Oh, herpes. <laughs> and I was like, what? Because I've never yeah. had, I've never had herpes before. Yeah. And uh, it was like, oh, it's just herpes. Yeah. And I've never been so happy to have herpes. Like I was just like, I've feel like I'm the first person that'll be like, oh, thank God. Like, it's just like, I was, he was like surprised at how relieved and thrilled I was to have herpes. this is not the normal reaction. <laughs> yeah, guys, like, really. So anyway, it was like, oh, this is great. And it, and it was weird. I didn't know you could get herpes around your ear or whatever. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, that's, uh, that's the good one. Yeah, the good one. That's <laughs> I called up my girlfriend. I was like, oh, this is great news. I've got herpes. She's like, how is this good news? Like, how... How would I want to be? How would I be happy for you right now? Well, the good news is it's the opposite end of the body that the uh, yeah, cancer yeah, was. Yeah. So it's spread, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, it's funny. Like, but I became I become a hypochondriac leading up to the blood tests and the scans and stuff. But not all the time. No. No. So only like maybe the week leading up to it is when I'll start panicking. And how have you changed? Have you changed your lifestyle? I mean, you look like a fit person. Were you a fit person previous to being sick? I was always pretty fit, but I've also learned like during chemo, I learned that to being doing exercise and stuff, weight training and and running was really good for like. Uh, recovery post chemo and also because the chemo was so just intense and uh, extreme that I always felt like okay I would like I'd have like a two-week break between my chemo rounds and in that time I would start to recover and I wanted to get fit 
for the next round of chemo. So I just like, you know, do a lot of runs and weights and stuff. Uh, so I kind of, you know, became pretty obsessive about it during the chemo to try and minimize the impacts of it. And then post chemo, there's all this research that says that particularly for men who've gone through testicular cancer, like you've got to do weight training, you've got to do like high intensity interval training to, um, I guess, um, boost your testosterone levels, boost the hormones that, you know, you might have, might be somewhat depleted in and reduce your chances of, um, you know, the cancer returning and boost your immune response, things like that. So just general kind of health advice, but that it's particularly relevant to me as well, given my situation. Did you change your diet at all? Was there, well, did you do any voodoo things? I'm very interested in that. Did you just no. trust Western science or was there any voodoo involved I as well? I have so much. I mean, I've always had a, I've just been super scientific my entire life and I've always had a lot of, maybe disdain is too hard a word, but I have had a lot of disdain towards non uh, scientifically tested methods of yes yeah. and so and that's probably only heightened in the last you know two years or so since going through cancer and seeing how good the treatments are and how scientific it is and how researched it is and how effective it has been for me that whenever someone suggests anything that is outside of that realm I get unjustifiably angry at their ignorance but that's something that is on me not on them but I'd also say like um I had to, I won't say who because they might hear the podcast but uh someone suggested to me like oh why don't you try like uh some stretching like I was going through chemo and they were like oh try some stretching stretching yeah and it was like it's um, stretch out those tumors. <laughs> the problem is that the tumors are all jammed in. If yeah. you just stretch them out, <laughs> and so stretching, I was like, "What the what? fuck are you talking about? What am I about? stretching? My testicle?" Yeah. He <laughs> <laughs> was like, "Oh, it's like you know, it's like Chinese yeah. medicine. Like you oh. do these stretches in the morning. It's meant to really help." And I was like, "Just please never <laughs> speak to me again." Like. It's like, dude, I've got, you know, I just did 16 hours of chemo. Yeah. And you're telling me to go do stretching. Yeah, like, so. Have you tried dipping your ball bag in apple cider vinegar? Because I believe that might. Look, there's no research around it, but yeah. I've been doing it every day and I still don't have cancer. So. <laughs> that, I believe, is called the scientific process. Yeah, yeah. So. A sample size of one. I think that's enough, right? That's fine, right? Don't need a control group or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. Peer review. Uh, okay, so yes, you, you took a very scientific approach you know, to your treatment. So, um, but you know, Western medicine has a lot of, you know, areas that, it, you know, I mean, in, in some ways, like you've mentioned chemotherapy a lot of times and, you know, chemotherapy is still a very, you know, brutal way for us to, you know, treat cancer because yes. you're basically, I mean, well, you would probably understand more about it than I was about to roll into. Tell us about chemotherapy, what the theory behind it is, and then how brutal it is to actually go through. Um, so chemotherapy basically is a way, again, I'm not an oncologist, no. but based on my understanding is that it's a way of uh, targeting uh, cells that are cancerous in that the cancerous cells uh, replicate rapidly and grow rapidly due to you know, a lot of, you know, very complicated mm. factors. And so chemotherapy, basically like a combination of drugs that uh, for me, it was uh, an infusion. Some people take pills, some cancers have chemotherapy pills, but mine was all um, an infusion. And uh, they basically target fast 
growing cells, specifically cancer cells, but because you have other lot of fast growing cells in your body, that's why you have such horrific symptoms. And of course, the chemotherapy just reacts with other aspects of your body. So that's why you lose your hair, for example. I th- I'm pretty sure that's why, because your hair is fastly, you know, growing cells. So that's why you lose your hair. And that's why, you know, your gut gets fucked around a lot because the cells in your gut also rapidly growing. So that's one of the reasons why you have really bad uh, side effects, but also it just ruins your immune system. Um, it wipes out a lot of your like red blood cells. So I was, you know, exhausted and tired. It's really hard to explain how hard it is, particularly once you get to like, I was doing five days in a row. So once you get to like day four, five, six, and seven, those are the worst days of it. First two days you can kind of manage. It just feels like you just feel crap, but you're okay. And then those, those days are pretty horrendous and like you're kind of like just in bed vomiting and, um, yeah. And there's not really much relief, but I was super grateful that they've got so many good like anti-nausea drugs these days that they've been developing over the past. They're kind of recent, a lot of these drugs, because the nurses were telling me like, oh man, you're lucky you're doing it. It was strange. I kind of felt lucky because I'm like, oh, you're lucky you're doing this now because I was giving this chemotherapy to a dude with testicular cancer 20 years ago. Didn't even have the anti-nausea drugs. And the guy's just, you can, I just, I was vomiting heaps even with the drugs. I'm just imagining it would be 10 times worse without them. So, um, yeah, they give you obviously the chemotherapy, but then they also have to uh, give you all these anti-nausea drugs. They also have to, they gave me an injection uh, as well that would boost my immune system so that, you know, I wouldn't contract pneumonia because one of the real dangers is that you can get, you know, I mean, I know someone who went through chemotherapy and um, their immune system was so compromised they ended up being like um, meningitis, I believe it was. So, yeah, there's like so many, you don't realise how many other factors there are involved in giving someone chemotherapy it has to be really measured and i remember my doctor being like like okay this is how much cancer you've got and he was like okay this is this exact dose to the milligram we have to do it at this time it's so regimented and so scientific like i said like they give you like a bag of chemo that takes like two hours to get through then they give you like a bag of fluid for an hour or two then they'll come in and give you some anti-nausea drugs or an injection and then they'll go next bag and like you know and you just do that for, for me, it was like 12, 14, 16 hours a day for like five days in a row. And what are you doing while you're, while all this is happening? Like, what are you doing to pass the time in between, you know, being sick and those sort of things? But what, what's the rest of your time? I mean, you sleep a lot because you're yeah. just so exhausted and that's like the best. If you can sleep, like, I mean, if I could just pass out for five days, yeah. that would be the best. Yeah. yeah. But, if I could just yeah, sleep and you can chemo me yeah. while I'm asleep. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so that's probably the best thing you can do, but it's, you're so tired and feel so crappy. Like you, I couldn't even open my eyes. Mm. Like I couldn't watch a movie. I couldn't watch TV just cause like, just it's tiring. Like it's yeah. just staring at something. It requires some energy that I just didn't have, which is crazy. So, um, I guess I would listen to like podcasts and stuff. Cause that like, I can literally just, I don't have to, there's no effort involved in that. Um, and obviously, you know, I would have friends and family visits, and How were your friends and family? Like, I mean, what was it like for them? You know, like you said, you were being very strong for them, but mm-hmm. yeah, how did they handle the fact that you, a, you know, a, a young fit man suddenly was so sick? I think it was hard for them to see how kind of, you know, how much of a toll it, the therapy took on me, but also like it was working and we knew it was working and it started working pretty much straight away. So... We were all just like, just smash through it. You know, we were all kind of really like, let's just smash through it and get it done. I was like, just 
keep give me the bag. So I just yeah. keep hooking me up. I was like, they wanted to take a break, and I'm like, no, 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 just keep going. Let's get through it. Let's get through it. I remember like, like, like my final because I would do like five days in a row, and then like on the fifth day, one morning they woke me up at four thirty in the morning to start the chemo. I was like, great, I'll be home by the afternoon. Great, we can get this done. I can go home and just you know rest it off at home. So we were all really just, um, I guess, motivated and just to get through it. And what about, you know, your work and the rest of your life during this time? What, How was that going and what were you doing and what were you capable of doing and how were you keeping a connection with that world? Yeah, I mean, I think most people think that, like, your life just completely stops. But it doesn't really in the sense of, like, you know, I would do chemo for, like, five days. So obviously, I can't do anything then. And then it takes about a few days to recover. But then by, like, day 10, like, I'm back. I'm right at the project. So I go back there and, you know, work there a few days a week. And that was super great. Like, that was so flexible. They were just like, just let us know whenever you want to come in. And then I'd just be back on stage gigging. And I, it was stupid because, like, I looked so bad. Like, I looked like I had cancer and I was going through chemo. But I didn't want to talk about it on stage yet. So I'm oh, like, okay. So it's like, you know, and I hadn't really written about it or tried to write jokes about it yet. So there was a really just stupid period where I was like just going on stage, clearly yeah. dying, dying from cancer yeah. and not addressing it whatsoever. D- dying from cancer and the cure from cancer, yeah, from yeah, cancer yeah. which both technically are killing you a bit for a while. Exactly. Yeah. And it's so weird because like everyone was like, oh, what's going on? Like everyone was like, this guy looks horrible. Yeah. But I just do, I, do, I don't know what I was thinking, thinking that I didn't have to mention it or address it. Well, a great thing about comedy is there's a lot of people who look pretty terrible <laughs> anyway. You're like, oh, he's probably got a drug problem or something. It's I was going to, yeah, I was going to yeah. have just been started up heroin. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> look, the side effects are tough, but, you know, we're just taking it one day at a time at this point. I mean, you were still getting the gigs. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, know. That's important. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> But I kind of just think it was such a stupid thing to do. And I think I kind of learned mm. from that as well as like, you know, you've got to, you've got to remember, you've got to put yourself in the position of the audience. Yeah. They've just seen this guy walk out. They'd all feel like, they'd all have questions. They'd all feel tense. Like you've got to address that. And so once I started actually doing comedy about it and addressing it, like the gigs were a lot better. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, I'm interested in you transitioning uh, it into material. So you talk about the idea that you're still gigging while you're uh, sick, but you're not talking about being sick and you're not talking about the treatment of being sick. When do you start to combine those two things? When does this you know, terrible thing that you've gone through in your life become something that you can now start to talk about on stage and uh, you know how did that feel when you first did it can you remember the first time you actually talked about it in front of an audience because yeah as a stand-up comedian you know I have this insight into you know like god it must have been such a incredibly hard and terrible thing to go through but once you're fine you're like well this is good material so 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 how can I talk about it and where can I talk about it and how did that start did you always know even when you were doing Doing it, were you always sort of half thinking when I get back to stand up at some stage, this is going to make a pretty good show? I didn't think, yeah. I mean, I was thinking like, mm. this is clearly because you always write about your life experience right. and what's what's interesting and unique to you. And you know, having cancer is a very interesting and unique. It's horrible, but it's and it's you know awful for you and your family, but mm. it's still interesting. And there's definitely some interesting angles you can talk about. So. And, you know, I mean, let's be honest, as a comedian, you've, you've at least got one of the funny cancers as well. Yes, it's the f- of the I cancers. Mean, you know. I mean, it's a good one. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> of the cancers. Yeah. But I, I mean, I remember thinking this is, I always thought it was funny. Like right yeah. from the beginning, I thought this is pretty funny. Just because like, 
when you before you start doing chemo, um, there's a chance that chemo can make you infertile. So you go and do a sperm deposit at an IVF clinic beforehand. And I remember, like my my parents had flown back by this point, and my mum was always for was, that. Yes, that's why. <laughs> well, there's one thing we're not going to miss. <laughs> well, my mum, you know, was you know obviously a classic Jewish mother, just yeah. loves being. Um, I love mum. She's amazing. Yeah. She's very hands on. And well, sorry, I shouldn't well, say hands on. <laughs> in relation to this yeah, story, yeah, she's very involved. Be. <laughs> but she was like, <laughs> she's so proud. Have you seen the size of his testicle? <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I had to go to this sperm deposit and yeah. mum came along and mm. I don't know why she wanted to be there, but she was there. And I just oh, thought that was really funny. At that stage, I guess it was like, she wants to meet the grandchildren. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? One day that is going to be the apple of her Just like, going to make sure. <laughs> she wants to make sure there will yeah. be grandkids sometime in the future. Yeah. So and I thought that was just really funny. Like that's just already So hilarious. you and just mum going to the... Amanda came as well. Okay. And Amanda the whole time is like, why, why is your mum here? Yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess it's the only time in history where it's appropriate for your mum to be there when you're creating grandchildren. Yes. So, <laughs> in any other situation, it'd be even more awkward. I didn't, um, I didn't never say this in the show, but I just always thought I could never make it funny on stage. But yeah. I just always thought it was funny how I don't know, like I went in and did the thing, and my mum and my girlfriend are just sitting there waiting out for there me. together. What are they talking about? I mean, wouldn't you just love to? <sighs> I've just, asked. I actually asked. Oh, Amanda. you've asked them. I was like, what are you? What, what did you talk, you talk about? about? I think Amanda. I, I think she couldn't remember. I think they right. kind of just stayed silent. Mm. I mean, what? What is there? To, I mean, I don't know what you would say. Well, I mean, my mum's like, yeah. does he usually take this? Yeah, long? I was going to say, has he been a while? Yeah. Is this... <laughs> because I've got a, I've got a yeah. nine o'clock. <laughs> I just want to know if I'm going to make it or not. I mean, you don't want to, don't want to, don't want to be too quick and you don't want to take too long. Well, exactly. You know. whole... I mean, I was, I mean, it took me two minutes, but I waited yeah, 20 just so, exactly. I, just so I wasn't embarrassed yeah. when I came out. Two minutes, know. you come straight out. They show, they just share a knowing They're like... nod together. Uh, <laughs> typical. Amanda's like, mm, you know. <laughs> the bane of my existence. <laughs> But that's um, funny, you know, like right, that. And that's like course. three days into being diagnosed and already this hilarious thing has happened. Because that, yeah, you're right. You, you've just been diagnosed, but you have, there's some urgency to getting this done. Yeah. So you have to like. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Like, so I've always, and so I, look, I know that I always get up. There's people who've had cancer who hear me talk about this stuff and get upset at me because they're like, there's nothing funny about cancer. And I understand that some people have that attitude. I just don't have that attitude. I think everything can be funny. Like that's always been my process. Like my grandfather, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors and I talk about that on stage and I think you can find humour in that. If I can find humour in that and I can make people laugh at that, surely. Well, they survived. That's the good one. Well, exactly. So, <clears throat> so I just, that's not just sure, been Not sure attitude. I can make that joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah, probably yeah. it depends on who you are, but I've just always thought you can make anything funny yeah. and, um, and that's why processing bad shit that happens. Yeah. So was that the sort of comedy that you liked beforehand? Like, were you always a fan of, you know, comedy that was using, you know, darker things, pain and you yeah, know, to, sure. to provide comedy? hundred percent. Like always my favorite comedy and I always tried to do it and would rarely pull it off. Mm. And it was always frustrating when I couldn't pull it off. And I'd always be like, oh, the audience just is too empathetic. But it was just because I wasn't good enough at comedy to pull it off. Um, and then times it did work, I was like, this is great. And it made me work out that there's a difference between like 
you can talk about a subject, but just to be clear, like who the target is of the joke, you know, like you can talk about the Holocaust, but the target can't be the victims of the Holocaust. The target has to be the Nazis and the perpetrators and the bad people, you know? So in the same way, like I can talk about cancer, but the target can't be people with cancer mm. because you don't, you don't want to demean people who are already going through something so horrific. So my target has always been the whole experience of cancer and the people around you and the way that people react to you and treat you differently and so forth. So I think there's humor in cancer. I just, I would never make jokes at the expense of people with cancer. How did you feel that people, um, there is a responsibility and you clearly uh, are thinking about that responsibility, which in itself is a, you know, quite a mature thing to be doing six, seven years into a comedy career is like, you know, thinking about, well, even less than that, you know, when you're doing this show, I guess, right? Which is like, I have a responsibility with this show that there are going to be people who are, you know, might be triggered by some of the things that I'm saying. I will have to think about the perspective of these jokes and, and mm. what these jokes are about. Now, you obviously... You, you you had cancer, mm. so it gives you permission to be able to talk about that thing, you know, in a way in the first place as well. But did you think a lot about how you were going to tell the story, you know, how you would structure it in a way that it was your story and not speaking for everybody else or that it was, you know, attacking you know, or having fun with the things that are funny about cancer without, you know, you know, saying that cancer itself was funny? Did you think about that stuff a lot? Yeah, heaps, because... Um, I thought the only way I can do this show is if I just make it super personal and it's only about me and my experience and I don't try to generalize and extrapolate about other people. And there was one joke that I tried that never worked and I realized, oh, now I know why it didn't work. So the joke was kind of the story I told you before about like um, hanging out with other people with cancer. Like people would say to me when I had cancer, people would be like, oh, you should hang out with other people with cancer. That's a good thing. Like that'll kind of help your mental health go through it all. And like my joke, my joke was like, why do I want to hang out with other people with cancer? Like, what do we talk about? Like, oh, you've got cancer. Me too. So let's uh, let's hang out. Oh, that, yeah. was, that was kind also, of also don't of introduce joke. me to a whole bunch of people who might die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. already. <laughs> I'm looking for some short-term Mate, friendships. So I'm this is great. Yeah. <laughs> and look, I mean, I want to be able to commit to coffee, but then you know, have have cancel if I need to. So, <laughs> I mean, it is a weird thing, though. Also, but there is that possibility. To go, yeah, you should meet my friend with cancer. Oh, oh great. So now I'm dealing with my own cancer mm. and the fact that I now have this friend that I like who's also really sick. Yeah, I need to concentrate on myself right now. Yeah, well, exactly. And so, I mean, the premise of the joke was kind of that, but then I would do a joke. The joke, the joke was like, well, why would I, cancer people with cancer, like, they're pretty boring yeah. people to hang out with. Like, you know, like. Real, real bummers, guys. Yeah, real. That's yeah. why I think that was kind of the joke. Like, man, like they're real low yeah, energy. I don't know. Uh, but, and so, <laughs> but that joke, <laughs> I don't know, they can't even open their eyes. Like, I don't know. What are we going to talk Just, about? You want to watch a movie? Yeah. No, I come too sad. So. But that was like the joke and it didn't work right. because that was a joke yeah. at the expense of people with cancer. And so I was like, oh, that's why that's not working. So I just cut that and just made the whole show specifically about, I wanted the joke to be about people's stupid advice. Right. Go hang out with people with cancer. I wanted that to be the joke. But then the yes, joke. That's the, that, and, and there is a way of doing that joke where yes. it's about the people giving the stupid advice, not, yes. not the not the victims of the cancer. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Like my friend, like my friend being like go stretch out your cancer like that's yeah. that's just about that stupidity but that was a joke that yeah. yeah it was not just about that stupidity it was also at the expense of people with cancer so um i had to cut that joke and i had to make sure that i didn't make that mistake again because as soon as you do that like i mean a show about cancer it's like you got to maintain the momentum you know because otherwise right. you know if you lose them at any moment like you're in a real dark 
rut. And know? was it all about cancer? Yeah. Yeah. Non-stop. So you can't, it's not like you can pad 10 minutes on paddle pops in the middle <laughs> yeah. of it, you know. It was wall-to-wall cancer. Yeah. Like, oh, actually, I, tr- I lie. There was like one bit that I crowbarred in there that I just, because I was fun, it was just about how I'm a very good speller. Okay. And uh, it was just a kind of, just give people yeah. a, a quick respite yeah, from exactly. cancer. But essentially it was, you know, I like to think it rather than wall to wall, it was ball to ball, but, but you know, that's just me. <laughs> Matt, I should have brought you on as a writer beforehand. This is, I'm, I'm upset that we're having this conversation now, 12 months too late. <laughs> well, you never know. Yeah. Like, I could get, I well, could okay, get just yes. to cancer. Matt, give it's me not a call. too late, mate. I'll give him my threats. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. And I, you know, if you've got any leftover material, <laughs> just a couple of things that I'll didn't, give you the scraps didn't so make, make it into the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All this stuff that mocks cancer victims, you can have all that. Yeah. Stuff, you know yeah. what? I could twist it. I could make it work. It's <laughs> so you do this show. Uh, was there any worry that you were too close to it to be doing a good show? Because yes. there is a thing with comedy where you know you need to have some sort of. Di- Sometimes you can see somebody working through something on stage, and you're like, "This will be funny," but you are way too close to it at the moment to have got to the place where this is entirely funny. Mm. Did you uh, have worries about that? Yeah, I mean, like what you just said, like, you know, you see someone who's just been dumped that day yeah. and they go on stage and start yeah. ragging on their girlfriend. I'm like, oh, this, this is bad. This is not the place for it, but Yeah, like this is actually, you're just yeah. full of anger and resentment. Yeah. Like that's what this is. There's no comedy here. Maybe it will be funny, but yeah. not right now. And I was like, I just don't want to be that. Like you have to really, I think I kind of processed it relatively quickly. And that was probably because I started writing about it and doing jokes about it pretty quick. Um, so yeah, I, but I, there, and there was definitely that concern. Like I was doing... I was doing a show about cancer and technically like, and I had like a scan, like I think I was doing the festival and it was like, oh, I'm going for a scan. I got a scan that day, you know, to see if I was still in remission, you know? So it was crazy to be doing a show about it when I was like, right, still very much like, you know, in it. But I also thought I want to do a show. That's like my challenge is every year I want to do a show and I've got nothing else to talk about. So it has to be about this. So I was kind of just like trapped. But it'd be um almost... Almost impossible in a year where you've gone through that to also have something else that you could talk about. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, I have just yeah. no, it's a very all consuming, yeah. you know, experience. So, like, I've got no other life experience to draw on. And I also thought it would be pretty impressive if I can do a show about cancer when I've just spent the last 12 months like, doing chemo and having a very interrupted year. I was like, it'd be interesting if I can pull this off. So, I think I was like kind of excited about that challenge. And I also thought that. Um, even though there is that risk of doing a show about something that's too close, there's also the benefit of it's very authentic and real as well. Like if I did the show now, it would feel very inauthentic, to be honest. I don't think I'm emotionally attached to that story as much anymore, but I was at the time. So I think it was probably the, I think it was the right decision for sure. I don't, I don't have any regrets about doing that show then. And now this year is a different show still kind of influenced and informed by that cancer experience, but a very different, completely different show about 12 months of being in remission and uh, a different outlook I now have on my relationships having gone through cancer. And that's just the show I'm at now and then next year will be a different show and I'll be in a different place 12 months after that and after that and after that. Because that is, again, another difficulty because you do this show, which is this incredibly compelling story. And as you said, you know, part of why it works is that you are still... You know, connected to it, but yeah. you're probably in that sweet spot, you know, where 
you are connected to it enough for it to be authentic, but you know, you've got enough distance in your mind that you can do it without it being, did it feel like you were reliving it when you would tell the stories or did it feel like you were moving through it as you told the stories? No, I was like so detached from it when I was on stage and probably for the best. I think there were times where I was like, man, why can't I get emotional about this on stage? Do you know, because it was actually around the same time that like Nanette had come out, which is, you know, yeah. was, you know, cultural phenomenon and everyone's like, you know, comedy is about being yeah. really kind of like being, wearing your heart on your sleeve and revealing your emotions when you're on stage yeah. and, and like, you know, incredibly powerful show because yeah. you could see the emotion. Mm. And I remember thinking like, I wonder if I could bring the emotion out for me. And then like I tried, but like, I was like, nah, this is... <laughs> <laughs> It just felt so forced and I was like, I just, after I got off stage, I was like, it just felt like I was trying to contrive something that wasn't there for me. Like I was. You were, ironically, that you were trying to, you were being inauthentic about authenticity. Yes. Like what people would perceive as being authentic, which is to, you know, connect with it on that level of it, you know, having a cry and getting a, you know, but that. The the thing that people get wrong about Hannah's show, because Hannah's show was a cultural phenomenon and, you know, and, you know, really an iconic show that will be remembered as emblemic of an era and a time and all these mm. sort of things, you know, throughout history. And there are rare comedy shows in the history of stand-up comedy that do that, you know, so effectively. But it was of a time and a place and of a performer who was in that time and place and mm. it was her truth. Yes. You know, that show was the same, you know, when I saw it at the, well, not the same, but, you know, the same style of show, what it was trying to achieve was when I saw it at the Melbourne Comedy Festival in the Lower Town Hall, Mm. you know, when no one ever imagined it was going to be something that, you know, yeah, tore up and uh, yeah, put back together comedy. You know, it was authentic because it was authentic to Hannah. And what we, you know, mistake is this idea of going, you know, you need to do it in a way that's authentic to you. You yes. need to tell your story in the way that you need to tell your story. Yeah, and I think what I learned from that is, like, as soon as you try to, I guess, emulate what someone else is doing, you just, you'll fail. There's, you can't emulate what another comedian is doing. And so for me, I was like, oh, no, I'll just keep doing the show the way that I have been doing, the way that I want to be doing it in a very, like, detached manner where I tell the story. It's funny. I do jokes. And at the end, I'm happy that... I've talked about a dark subject matter for an hour and people have still kind of come out laughing and thinking that was funny. That's kind of, that was my goal. Yeah. It wasn't meant to be, it was, so I didn't write it as like an emotional show. So it no, was, it was a funny, a funny show about a darker topic. Yeah. I mean, the first five minutes were just dick and ball jokes. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's, that's, you know, that's what I was, I was trying to be just funny about something that was very dark. Yeah, not funny. Exactly. In of itself, that yes. juxtaposition. So then when you do this, you do this show and people, you know, see this show and they, you know, like this show and it, you know, does well and, you you know, suddenly you have to follow that up. Yeah. Like, I mean, just from a comedian point of view, there's a part of me that goes, well, shit, that was the big cancer show. <laughs> you know, like, how do you follow the, how do you follow that show? Yeah, it's something like, like they make, it gave me a lot of, anxiety I think because like I finished the show in like April and then I remember sitting down in like in May and just being like all right what else can I talk about and it was you know very uh I don't know intimidating and confronting to be like what else have I got and I just decided like don't even try to follow up that show just do something completely different like as long as you're doing something different every year there's no just don't have a point of comparison don't allow there to be a point of comparison does that make sense so I was like oh I'm just going to talk about um, my relationships and stuff that I think matters to me and I'm going to maybe put in a bit more social commentary this year that was completely, that was never in the show previously. So 
I just thought, just be different, just write a different show and keep it different. And then there's no point of comparison. And then people aren't going to be like, I just don't want people to be like, oh, well, you know, last year's yeah. show was better. Like, I just be like, last year's show was different and this one's different. That was my process. And I can't get cancer every year, guys. Yeah, just so you guys can... I mean, if you want me to get cancer, <laughs> yeah. I'll do my best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I was in the sun yesterday okay. for a couple of hours. Yeah, in fact, I've just got a sunbed at home. <laughs> what can I do for you people? I'm trying my best. I'm just trying to crap material. Uh, when you say social commentary, what is it that you are passionate about? What is it that you are bringing into your work that, you know, might be in, you know, fall under that banner of social commentary? Yeah, so uh, as a Jewish person, I've become more and more aware of my position as like a even though I don't want to be I've become more and more aware of my position as like a representative of the Jewish community when I am on stage being Jewish and talking about my community even though I don't want to be that I uh, feel like I have become that because now whenever I do a show or do an interview or whatever I do get um, messages from people in the Jewish community you know with advice or you know reminding me that this is how you know I'm portraying the community in a good way or a bad way. So mm -hmm. um, it's something I think about a lot now and there's a lot of, uh, sadly, anti-Semitism is on the rise. I think, you know, bigotry and racism generally seems to be on the rise. So do you think that is, is do you think that those things are on the rise? Are they uh, more acceptable? Are the capacity for people to have those voices heard just easier? Like, you know, with the internet, like, I mean, I don't, I mean, you know, I'm, I don't, it's, I'm not in a group that's persecuted by society. So mm. often... Straight white males. Straight white I mean, sorry. The most attacked people in society. I forgot. Sorry. I, I forgot. I read my Jordan Peterson. Oh my. Uh, straight white men are the butt of everything. And yeah. uh, of course, the most persecuted people in society. And but, this podcast just got cancelled. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you just stood up straight, you wouldn't have got cancer. That is definitely one of the 12 rules. So, should have kept my crew, should have kept my room clean. Exactly. Sorry, Jordan. That was the right. problem. Yeah. If you cleaned your room every day, maybe your balls wouldn't have got so big. I believe that's, that's the rules of life. Yeah. So, um, uh, when I see reports of these things, it's always very hard to tell if there is rising anti-Semitism or mm. we're just getting more reports of anti-Semitism. So yes. you feel like there is a rise in anti-Semitism? Statistically, there is. Yeah. There's just, I mean, I wouldn't, uh, again, like I'm very research scientific based. Mm. There is statistically. And so I am more aware of how I portray myself as a Jewish person and uh, as... And how does that... It manifests itself. Well, I used to previously do a lot of jokes about uh, Jewish stereotypes. Yeah. And I always did them with irony in oh. that, oh, you know, yeah. Jews love money. And, you know, yeah. I don't think it was that simplistic. But no, well, maybe no, no, it was but, at the start. Maybe it was really simplistic. Right, I don't know. Right. But even if you're playing off that in a clever way. Yes. Which you I don't think can, I was. But even anyway. if you are sometimes, you can still r run the risk of reinforcing the prejudice more than yes. playing off it in a clever way. Exactly. And so this year, I'm a lot more aware of that. I mean, there was a Nazi rally in like St. Kilda like 12 months ago, in like yeah. around the corner from where I live, like actual Nazis, Nazis. with SS yeah. helmets in St. Kilda. Like, it's fucked. You know, so I've got to be aware of the context mm. in which I'm now living and I don't want to... Um, be someone who reinforces negative stereotypes about my community, you know, but I also want to be able to skewer and make fun of 
the idiocy of those stereotypes. Getting that balance is really hard because, you know, sometimes I'll say a joke and I think I've achieved the balance. But then someone says, no, you ha- like you haven't. You're actually just reinforcing a bad thing about Jewish people. So I'm still trying to get that balance. It's really hard knowing, you know, how is the audience getting the irony here or are they not? It's, I'm going to ask you what might be a... Uh, uncomfortable question. Maybe it won't be. Maybe it'll just be fine to talk about this. Uh, we hear a lot about you know, casual racism of Australians. Mm. I imagine that it's probably pretty similar when it comes to casual anti-Semitism. Mm. Like, you know, it, is there, like, is casual anti-Semitism a thing and how big a deal is casual anti-Semitism? Like, I mean, Nazis on the beach, we can all agree, Nazis on the beach. <laughs> that's quite formal. We're, yeah, we're, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, front on. That's black None tie us, yeah, anti-Semitism. That's, that's your <laughs> anti-Semitism right there. You yeah. know, the graffiti on the walls of, you know, synagogues. These, you know, uh, uh, you know like... Uh, uh, there was a, a case in St Kilda of graffiti on, the, on one of the prominent buildings. I can't remember what it was. But, like, vicious anti-Semitism, mm. you know, like that sort of stuff. But the day-to-day sort of, you know, control the media, you know, joke... Mm. How much, how much of that do you see in here, and how big a deal is that sort of stuff to you? Um, I see it heaps online, yeah. and I like to think that nothing happens online is real, and it's all just doesn't have any real world impact. But like, I've experienced a lot of anti-Semitism in my life. If I look back on it, like I used to play footy for a Jewish club, you know, every couple of weeks, someone would yell a, an anti-Semitic slur to us on the field or off the field, yeah, right. you know, that sticks with me. Um, when I was 15, I was working my first job at Subway in Elstonwick. And I remember my boss uh, was serving some Jewish people and he came back and was like, oh, you know, typical Jews always wanting extra, extra this, extra that, you know. And that's that moment sticks with me. You know, I, was, I didn't say anything. I was 15. He didn't know right. I was Jewish, obviously. And I, I mean, he was in Elstonwick. What do you expect? Like, there's, of course, there's Jewish people going to be. I don't know why he just assumed there was no Jews around. Like, right. <laughs> dude, you're in Elstonwick and you're just being like, you're saying something racist to a staff member who mm. could easily be Jewish, you know? Mm. Who so, was Jewish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not just easily could be. Yeah, and like, Actually have you, was. like, have you seen me? Like, yeah. I mean, I look less Jewy yeah. now, but like, I was like mm. curly hair. I was, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, those moments stick with me and it reminds me that, you know, that exists and I need to make sure that I don't perpetuate in any way. But also I want to be able to make fun of it. And the way of making fun of it is to, I think a lot of the times to assume the stereotype is true and then, you know, force it to its ridiculous logical conclusion. You know, like, oh, if Jews control the media. Like I've got a joke in there, like if Jews control the media, I try to make sure if I'm watching TV with a friend, I won't change the channel. I don't want him to think that I'm controlling the media, you know. So, I, so like I think a way of achieving what I want to achieve is just let's go with the assumption that the stereotype is true and run it to its stupid conclusion. Um, problem is though, sometimes people don't pick up on the irony and they think, oh, you've just said the stereotype is true. So yeah, getting that balance right is really hard and it's something that I've been working on for a while. 
And how conscious of you uh, of feedback are you? Like just in general, if somebody you know comes to you and says, you know, I think you've gone too far here, or I was offended by this. How do you process feedback? How do you deal with criticism? What's your attitude to taking someone's opinion on board, but letting it change you or not letting it change you? I like to say, oh, I don't care about the opinions of people, but like I really do, and it's well, of course. Particularly you would have if, chosen something easier to do for a living if you didn't care about the opinions of well, people. Well, exactly. So, I mean, I like to think that I don't care, but I do. If my girlfriend says to me, oh, I think that joke is not the right joke to make, then I'll take that on board and I'll, it definitely informs my writing. And same thing with like, you know, me and my mum had a lot of fights earlier on because I was talking about the Holocaust on stage. And her view was like, you can never make the Holocaust funny. And I mean, I kind of stand that view, completely understand yeah. it. But I just disagree. And I think you can if you have the right targets. Like I had a joke that was about this, um, about Holocaust deniers. And it was about a guy in Iran who thought that, who said that, you know, the Jews exaggerated the number of people who died in the Holocaust. Very classic kind of, you know, trope of anti-Semitism. And uh, his logic was, it wasn't 6 million Jews who died. It was uh, only 2 million. And my joke was, well, if, isn't that still enough? enough? Still enough. <laughs> that feels like yeah. enough. Um, and... You know that was the point. Of, that was the joke. But my and I, th- I still think that joke is fine. Like I don't have any regrets. No, that's that a joke. yeah. That is a totally great. Like that's a very solid premise for yes. you know, humor. It's yeah. like you're making fun of somebody. You know, saying that six million people are dead. That's bad. But yes. two million people are dead. I mean, yeah. And, and like the joke was like, you know, if two million people yeah. died in Melbourne, mm. that's like like no police officer is going to come out and be like, geez, really good serial killer on the yeah. loose at the moment. <laughs> like, no, it's a genocide. Like yeah. that's so. Yeah. Um, me and mum had a lot of disagreements about that, and I decided I'm just going to keep that joke because mm. I believe in that joke. But then I had another joke, which was a, a bad joke that I cut, and um, it was because I did a joke about how like um, someone said that. This was like a few years ago. There was a big guns debate. You know, the guns debate was huge. And someone idiot, I think it was Ben Carson, who was a Republican candidate in 2016 maybe, Mm -hmm. uh, he came out and said, uh, well, you know, if Jewish people had guns during the Holocaust, there wouldn't have been the Holocaust. Like, because the Jews would have been able to fight back against the Nazis, and that's why we need guns today in America. And it's such a dumb... I mean, it's a bold argument. It's a bold argument. And if the Jews had guns during, yeah, I think he'd just seen um, uh, that Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, movie. Uh, glorious bastards. Like, like, I mean, like, we all. I mean, <laughs> he thought it was real. He was saw like, this documentary. <laughs> where, clearly said where Brad Pitt shoots yeah. Hitler fifty yeah. times in the face. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and we all saw yeah. what guns did for the Jews. Yeah. So. But I wrote a joke that was, it was a bad joke. And I, I, in hindsight, I feel ashamed about it. Can you tell me what the joke is? Are you comfortable to share it in the space of knowing that it was a bad joke? Yeah. And And I'll tell you why I got rid of it. So the joke was, um, I mean, that's, uh, the joke was like, what an idiot. I mean, if the Jews had guns, I mean, we would have just sold them at a profit, you know, which is a bad joke. And it's, I I thought I'm just making fun of that stereotype that Jews love money. But then my uncle said to me, um, don't do that joke because there is this horrible stereotype that Jews during the Holocaust didn't fight back and that they went like lambs to the slaughter, you know, to the gas chambers. And it's completely false. There were so many uprisings. Uh, The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in particular is a really famous one. And I was like, oh, shit. Like that's – and I was like so – I did that on TV and I was like, oh, fuck. Like that's so bad. And that's – um. 
one of the things that I still think about a lot. I'm like, let's not make that mistake again. Oh, look, I was, I'd was been doing comedy for two years. Like, I was... I can forgive myself for just being a dumb new comedian who just wanted to make a joke that was made and it was making people laugh. It was. And so hopefully 99% of the laughs were people getting the joke. But I think there was obviously that reinforcing of, oh, Jews are meek and timid. They didn't fight back and they, and that's why so many of them died, which is obviously false. So yeah, that makes me ashamed to think that I did that joke and I just want to be better and not make the same mistake again. Uh, so are you open to the idea that you will, because what I would say is that's a wonderful thing that clearly that you're able to take that on board and then, you know, uh, you think about it in such a positive way about, you know, how it'll prove you going forward. But are you also open to the idea that there's probably some things that you're saying now that, you know, three years from now or five years from now, you'll look back on and say, oh, okay, with what I know now, yeah. I wouldn't have framed that in the way that I did back then as well. 100%. But isn't yeah. that a good thing? I, mean, I, like, I think it's a good thing, but yeah. some people think that's the death of the larrikin and the political correctness has gone mad and you can't oh, say no, anything anymore. I mean, that's stupid. Yeah, I, so speak to why that's stupid because it's nice to hear from a younger person why you think that attitude is stupid. I mean, I have so much disdain for the older hack comics who keep saying that political correctness has gone mad and you can't say anything anymore. I won't name names. If no. I'd love to. But like, but, but talk to it because I think it's a great thing to talk to. It's um, what I think is that it's, it, it, it's comedians who say that are comedians who have not evolved their comedy and changed their comedy such that audiences with new sensibilities can feel comfortable laughing at the jokes. I mean, I think... Transphobia is probably the most common topic that, you know, these older hack comedians love to do. You know, they love to talk about uh, men who think they're women and women who think they're men, you know, rah, rah, rah. and it, the jokes don't work because the audience that they're playing to thinks that you're being mean and belittling people who have already been persecuted enough for decades. So 95% of the audience you're playing to already believes that and your joke is not good enough to change that so you know i just think that political awareness is really great because it makes comedians get better and if you don't your career patters out into nothing which is what happened to so many of these old hack comedians and they blame you know the audience for not for being too pc no you're just bad at comedy now that's that's what's happened I, I'm very passionate about it. And it makes me very angry. Good. As yeah. you should be. And I, like, you know, could not agree with you more. I, it, it, it's funny. I, last night I was going to do a set at um, the European Beer Cafe, the Carl Chandler's room that he does on a Saturday night. And my Uber driver, I was just having a chat to him. You know, he's asking where you're going. And so, you know, having a chat about that. And he really brought up the whole, you know, oh, it must be hard being a comedian these days. You know, can't say anything anymore. Political correctness has gone mad. And there's probably been times in the past where I just would have let it fly and moved on. But I think, I, like, of late, I've really started to just keep answering that with, no, I don't think that's true. Because... There are yes, there have been times where someone has been offended by something that I've said. Sometimes rightly, sometimes 
not so rightly, you know, in the same journey that you've been through where sometimes you'll get advice from somebody and you go, no, 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 I think I can still, I think I'm making the right point here, Hmm. you know, and I'm open to the idea that maybe two, three, four years from now I might have a different understanding. But at the moment I think I'm speaking my truth and I've thought this through and this is what I'm trying to achieve. And sometimes I've got feedback from people and going, oh, that's interesting. I never would have thought when I was saying that thing that that's what – you know, members of the audience, even if it was a small percentage of members of the audience were hearing me say, yes. you know? So I think that, you know, being able to hear those things is great, but as a comedian, surely you want the challenge of, you know, language and content and these things to be constantly evolving for them to be more difficult and more interesting because that's what's going to produce growth in you as a performer and a communicator. Yes. Do you know, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. The flip side, and I... I think maybe the people who are saying, oh, PC has gone mad. Maybe I'm trying to understand their point of view. Yeah. And maybe their point of view is that the problem with some comedy is that it just attempts to pander to the audience. Yes. And merely reinforce to the audience their own views and validate the audience. And the audience just claps and goes, yes, uh-huh. I agree with that. Yeah. This isn't, yeah, yeah, this isn't funny, No, but tell you what, boy, do I agree with it. Yeah. And It's the old cliche of like, you know, welcome to my TED Talk. Yes. Know? Yes. And I hate that comedy perhaps just as much as I hate mm. the, the, the dumb comedy that just, you know, belittles persecuted minorities. Maybe not as much. But I hate that comedy too because it's so pointless. So... I can't, maybe if that's what people are saying when they say, oh, BC has gone, if that's what they're saying, I can empathize and understand a bit with that viewpoint. But if they're saying, oh, you can't make fun of transgender people, well, you're a fucking moron. Like, that, yeah, you shouldn't do that anymore. And audiences don't feel comfortable laughing at that. But it doesn't mean that you can't uh, still speak about, you know, that issue, for example. Yeah, like there is absolutely. A, there's a way that you could talk about that issue and, and you I'm know. I'm trying to do it in my show and I'm trying to, I, I don't think I've got the point. I don't think I've nailed it yet, but I'm trying to talk about how, you know, people say like, you know, I, my point is that, you know, you can identify in any way you want and just respect how people feel. And someone said to me, like, I don't understand how you can be like one thing and identify something else. And I was like, well, you're. 32 but you identify as 28 on tinder so (laughs) like doesn't isn't that the same so i think trying to point out the hypocrisy of those people can is probably the way to do it well i think yeah i have a a, 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 not a similar bit but in that i'm talking about this area and Mm. it it's funnily enough it's actually based on a a a louis ck joke you know that he when he came back and he had a particular hacky joke around, um, you know, it was the laziest of all, you know, if they want to be they or them, I want to oh, be yeah. there, you know, because yeah, I identify as a place. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was a bad joke. And like he's a, he was a guy who on stage, yeah. <laughs> which is a clear delineation that we <laughs> need to point out these days, someone I really admired as a comedian, you yes. know, the way that he, and, you know, part of what disappointed me when he came back, it was a leaked set and all these sort of things, yes. but was the lack of empathy through what he'd gone through and the way it was manifested. So I decided I wanted to write a joke that was kind of a response to that joke. So the premise of the joke is he says this and then my joke becomes about sort of picking apart and what happens after that, you know, in that world. Are there bits of that that still somebody might go, oh, you know what, though, the way you you know, frame this or the way you do that, I'm very open to that feedback. Mm. Like, because maybe there is a better way of me framing 
the point that I'm trying to make or the conversation. Or maybe in two or three years, there'll be parts of the language that, I mean, one of the things that I'm trying a lot to do and not always getting right is just to cut down on my casual ableist language, you know? Right. Crazy, mad, you know, nuts, you know, those sort of things that so easily roll off the tongue because yeah. we're raised on them. But, you know, if I can find a better word and a word that is, doesn't immediately go to ableist language in that moment, I try to do it. But it's like a constant process of me trying to make sure that, you know, I can find a better word. And and that's a good thing, isn't it? Because you don't want to do a joke that is going to make a percentage of the audience uncomfortable and have a bad time when you could totally just make a small change and now all of a sudden more people are Yes, but then, as you said, which I thought was a great point that you brought to the table, which is how do you make sure that you then don't cross the line into pandering to an audience and to not challenge an audience because an audience also isn't art. And do you consider stand-up to be art? There's a question. Yeah, it's so wanky, but yeah, I do. I mean, I kind of lament having to say that, but yeah, it is. But even that is part of the shame, isn't it? (laughs) You you lament saying it out loud. Like I feel so lame saying I do art art but like well you do but isn't that what you do i guess technically yes yes more than technically (laughs) you're a member of the arts you make your living from the arts sure i guess the connotations take ideas out of well what are the connotations some dude fucking does one painting (laughs) and they hang it up in a fucking building for a hundred years apparently that's more legitimate than you like what what, you know every year coming up with a brand new show that you do for like i mean i guess the connotations are like one fucking painting mate (laughs) One fucking painting. Get a new one. Do one every year for 25 exactly, years, mate. mate. We'll chat. I want to see a new painting. I mean, fuck Monet. His output, horrendous. And I in mean. fact, mate, not just one new painting, but I want to see you paint that painting for an hour yeah. every night. And I want to see you make changes and yeah. improve it. Exactly. <laughs> and I want someone to yell, this painting sucks, yeah. man. you got to work on this painting. She's not even smiling, mate. <laughs> She's not meant to smile. Um... I, I, yeah, I guess the commentation was saying, you know, comedy is art. Is it just makes it, it makes you sound like uh, I don't know, perhaps arrogant, or you feel like what you're doing is superior to other people's work. But, um, but I guess technically it is. It's self-expression, and you're trying to comment about yourself and therefore about society. So, and and then therefore the next extension being that art. You know, it doesn't it isn't compulsory that it's provocative, but a lot of great art, you know, is provocative and yeah. divides people. And I think like I've seen good stand up that is yeah. not provocative. It's just yeah. funny. This is funny. Like there's not and there's nothing more to take out of it. That is a funny thing. But uh, I prefer comedy that uh, makes the audience that challenges the audience in some way, makes them uncomfortable in some way, but still makes them laugh. So you can't make the audience uncomfortable and then not have a joke. Like, I don't want to do that. Um, but equally, you know, you don't want to make the audience feel comfortable and not have a joke either and just then they clap at the end. You spoke about, um, you know, uh, talk, you know, understanding a little bit more about the fact that, you know, you are representative, you know, of the Jewish community, that there comes a bit of a responsibility with that. Have you identified as being Jewish? Like, has that been a big part of your story in your life? It felt almost like you, okay, yeah, it has been, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Are you born, I mean, in, are you born and bred in Melbourne? Yeah, yeah. And in that, which part of the world? Uh, Caulfield. Yeah, okay. So really, <laughs> yeah, really bashing down the stereotypes here for this little conversation. About... Well, that's it. So it, I'm, 
it's, that's the thing is like people yeah. like I am such a stereotype. Yeah. I've got a law degree. I yeah. live in Caulfield. I'm lactose intolerant. Mm. It is tick. And you went into comedy. And I'm in comedy. Again. It's it's honestly embarrassing. Yeah. And so, and I'm trying to address <laughs> that in my show that I'm trying not to reinforce true stereotypes, but the problem is that I am a walking stereotypes so i'm trying hard although yeah. are you one testicle down do you mind me asking that yeah, yeah, people yeah. must ask that all the time i assume yeah. they had to remove a testicle. yeah that's the first thing they do they're yeah. they rid of the right testicle yeah. yeah now did hitler only have one testicle or not he did yeah okay and um <laughs> so t- <laughs> do you know the most common how feedback? does the community feel about that man <laughs> Well, you know, so I, when I started doing the show, I did like a run of trial yeah. shows at like Melbourne Fringe. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, whenever I put on a show, Jewish people will come because they're like, oh, he's Jewish. Yeah. Let's go support the local guy. <laughs> well, that's good. That's no, it's great. Great thing. I've, I've, I've loved the support. Yeah. I mean, th- I mean, the problem is that sometimes Jewish people do come and they're not, they don't know comedy. They no. don't get what I'm doing. <laughs> and so they hate it. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and they really sit there kind of glum, like, I don't know, like, this isn't Woody Allen. I don't get it. And so a lot of the times they hate it. But, you know, I obviously respect them coming along. And uh, when I started doing the show and I talked about losing a testicle, the most common feedback I would get after the show is a guy would always pull me aside and, you know, with like a yeah. bit of a wink, just be like, hey, mate, you know, uh, Hitler. <laughs> You know, one testicle too. So, you know, do with that what you will. And I'm like, dude, why are you telling me that? Like, why? Great. Now I, now I feel closer to Hitler. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that information I mean, it's to any, me. Yeah, empathize with the enemy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You but know. I kind of worked that into the show and it's actually kind of fun to talk about. Guys, and, can't we can't concentrate on what we have in common? <laughs> Sure, I don't like his policies towards our people, but no, I'll tell you what, I mean, we can. Then we could have had some conversations about how you fit into your undies. <laughs> Neither of us, both of us, wear great in skinny jeans, so you know, we've got that in common, you know. <laughs> um, so when you look at the world uh, external to. Um, you know, the cultural story that you have, mm. you know, you're a 20, what, 26, 27 year old man. I'm now 29. 29. I was 26 so when you, I got cancer. Okay. Yeah. So 29, you know, going into, you know, 30 years old, but mm. you know, what, when you look at the world and you look at your place in the world, how do you feel? I guess I'm trying to work out my place in the world still. And that's fine. I think, I think I'll work that out over time. I mean, I think that I'm a Jewish comedian. That's what I think. Okay. And so I didn't realize I was a Jewish comedian until I started doing comedy and hanging out and realizing how there's like, oh, there's so many, there's so few Jewish people in Australia doing comedy. There's a couple of us, um, but there's very few of us talking about it on stage and um, drawing on it. So, yeah, I didn't realize that I was a Jewish Really, I didn't realize how Jewish I was until I started doing comedy, and then I'd talk about it on stage, and I realized, oh, most of the other comedians are not Jewish. Most of the audience is not Jewish. I grew up in the Jewish bubble, so I, I always felt, if anything, like very un-Jewish because I'm not religious at all, right. and my Jewish friends mock me for like being so not Jewish. Like, I mean, I had salami and and pork this morning for breakfast. Right. Like, I'm so you know, not religious, very culturally, but not religious. And, but then when I go into the comedy world and I'm on stage, all of a sudden I'm like this big Jew to everyone. So I think that's um, something that I am now accepting. And I think that with, you know, there's a bit of responsibility that comes with being that person and being seen in that way. 
Uh, you talk about uh, non-religiously. So do you have a, you know, a faith of some kind? Is no. there, uh, so, because obviously when you're facing death, I always ask people on this podcast, what mm. do you think happens when you die? Um, you know, you're someone who's actually, I mean, we're all facing death, mm. of course, but, you know, you really faced it. Yeah. And so did it, did it make you think about, you know, like face at all? Did it make you think about what happens after we die? How present was that in your mind? I've always been an atheist. Um, always? I, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I don't recall. I remember like when I was like in yeah. primary school, they'd be like, no, you got to, mm. we prayed like every day and, you know, I got my, it's called a Siddur. It's got all, it's a book of all the Jewish prayers and, you know, I tried certainly try, I went to a Jewish school and they really tried to make me believe right. in God. And I was like, nah, I don't, I'm not buying into this. Um, so I've always been an atheist. There wasn't pressure from your family. My parents aren't, you know what my grand, so I think this is, it's, I've always found this interesting how much I'm influenced by my previous generations because my grandfather was, uh, Sam Weitzman. He was, uh, he grew up in a little town in Poland, very religious family. And then, uh, the Holocaust happened and he was a, I think there was, he had eight brothers and sisters, two of them, so him and his brother survived, the rest murdered. He spent five years in Auschwitz and he stopped believing in God. And it's interesting how because of that, my mother was never really raised believing in God and therefore I wasn't really raised believing in God either. And a similar thing also happened to my, my dad's side of the family in that his grandparents also went through the Holocaust. And I presume that that was an influence on why they no longer believed in God. I'm speculating there. But um, I find it interesting that the reason I don't believe in God is because my grandfather made it, made that, had that thought, you know, years earlier. And I think that's fine. I'm, I don't think it, I've always kind of been somewhat a little bit jealous of people who believe in God because it's like, oh, that must be nice to have that thought. And when I was like dying, I was like, it must be nice to believe that I'm going to go to heaven after all this. But no, I just, I could never make myself believe that there was a heaven. Did you think about death much during that period? Heaps. But I also was really careful not to as well. Like if I caught myself doing it, I try not to because, you know, you kind of go into this hole where it's like, what, how do I say goodbye to my family? How do I go say goodbye to my girlfriend and like as soon as you start thinking that like you can't get to sleep so uh i i would go onto those you know tangents and then try to pull myself out of them as soon as i noticed i was going on them because what does how does that help and it was also interesting when i got diagnosed it was around the same time that euthanasia was just legalized in victoria and i remember thinking well that's good timing you know like at least at least if i if it gets all too bad, I can just take a bunch of bills and, you know, go off. But I don't know if those thoughts were helpful at all. So I certainly thought about it heaps, but I also tried to pull myself out of it whenever I caught myself dwelling on it. Yeah. You talk about a lot about um, pulling yourself out of things. Have you also had external, you know, help through this process? Is there counselling and therapists and people that you can talk to about? Because... I imagine that all the ways of dealing with this leave some mm. legacy. You know, it doesn't matter what way you've dealt with, you know, a battle with cancer. At the other end, you're going to have, you know, a whole bunch of scars, yeah. you know, even about things you think you're fine with. Yes. What's interesting is that my doctors are always like, mm. 
you know, if you need counselling, there's like specific psychologists that deal with people with cancer and whatever. And I was like, I think I'm fine. Mm. And then at this one point where like my oncologist was like, like you're fine. Like, yeah, right. He's like, you don't need to see a therapist or, and that's all because I'm tough. It's because I had a really supportive family and girlfriend and I think without them, I would have been fucked, but I was just fortunate enough that I had a network around me. So I guess I didn't need that external support. It's ironic, by the way, that now that I've gone through cancer, now I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should like take care more, more care of my mental health. And now I'm thinking about, you know, seeing a psychologist, you know, just to think, just to talk about anxiety and things like that. So it's ironic that like now that I've gone through that, now I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should make my mental health more of a focus. When bizarrely, when I was going through cancer, I was like, I'm fine. What the, you know, the interesting thing about cancer is that it's, um, it kind of actually removes a lot of anxiety from your life. Mm. Well, at least, again, I'm like, I can only talk about myself. It just simplifies your life so much. It's like, okay, all I have to do is not die, do the chemo, recover, do my surgeries. That's all I have to focus on. It makes your life so simple. Yeah, in some ways you're like a, you know, professional athlete or whatever. You know, everything's everything's targeted towards the game. Mm. You know, as in like, you know, you've just got to go and do your training. You've got to eat these foods. You've got to blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We're all trying to, you know, that's your focus. And yeah. it doesn't really matter. You hear about, you know, athletes preparing for things and they're sleeping in an oxygen tent and blah, blah, blah. For, and they're just family just puts up with it because... The, you know, concentrating on the big game and mm. having an illness, I imagine, you know, particularly like a cancer where you've got this treatment, it is like it becomes, no, this is what you're doing. You're, yeah, this is what I'm doing. You're getting now. better from cancer. And what's, and like, you know, I've always been like so like obsessed with like, okay, what's the next thing? What am I working on? What am I, how am I getting better? Whatever. And then cancer is just like, well, you know, that all has to stop. Mm. And now you just focus yeah. on. Good getting, luck with all those plans you had. Yeah, well, yeah. exactly. And what's interesting is like now that like, you know, I'm kind of, have I'm in remission and now I'm back to a normal, you know, a normal life. That's when all the anxieties creep back again, just about work and whatever. So um, yeah, it's ironic how you know cancer actually. Obviously, you have the anxiety about you know your family and oh, I've got to do five days of chemo coming up and whatever. But yeah, it certainly removes all those other anxieties. That's for sure. Did you have um, did the, having a near death experience um, change the way you live your life now, or have you? I mean, do you like? I guess what I'm asking you is: some people have these experiences going, and I was a completely different person afterwards. Yeah, I feel like with you, it's changed you a bit, but like you seem maybe like you're a bit still similar to what you were beforehand. Yeah, Yeah. I think people expect you to change. I don't. I mean, people say they change. People expect me to change. I've got people think like, oh, you must have some wisdom now to yeah. share. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, I was kind of hoping you did when I invited you on the podcast, to be honest. <laughs> hey, so just you check got your, anything? Check your balls. That's all, that's all I can offer. Check your balls. You know, maybe go to a doctor if you think you're okay. I mean, like, if your balls getting big, it's just like, get a doctor to have a look at it. Yeah, it's like people, it's just, I've got nothing really to offer. I think that's so, that's really deep or meaningful. I just, um, I haven't changed much. I'm actually almost proud of myself for not changing much. I think that um, I'm proud of myself that I didn't let it change me. And I didn't let myself, it's ironic that I'm talking about cancer for so much, but I didn't get let myself be defined by yeah. my illness, which I think is important. Um, I think a lot of people go through an illness and it becomes them. And that's really sad to see. And I was always like, I've got cancer, but I'm also like, I'm still working and I've got other shit going on. And that was really important for me. So I try not to be defined by my experience and I don't want it to change me 
much. Are you an ambitious person? Yes. Yeah, I think so. It. Um, how does that? How do you go with that? Because ambition in of itself can be, you know, a, a, a ruthless taskmaster. Do you think you have a healthy ambition? Does it sometimes get on top of you, your ambition? I mean, I have a very um, love-hate relationship with my ambition. I love that it pushes me to be successful in things that I do. And then at the same time, I hate how it makes me anxious about what I'm going to try to, what I need to achieve next. Cause it's always, as soon as you achieve one thing that becomes the bar of, you know, that becomes your, your fallback position. It's like, well, I can't fall below that. I've got to get to the next thing. And I've always felt like in comedy, either you're getting better or you're getting worse. No one ever stays the same. And so I've always felt like I've got to be getting better. Otherwise it means I'm getting worse. So my ambition makes me achieve things and it made me really good at school, really good at uni. Like I was, you know, I duxed my school and I graduated like third at, in, at Monash Uni in my, in law. And, um, so it drove me to do those things. Mm. Did you work as a lawyer? Did you do articles and work in a firm or do any <laughs> of that sort of stuff? So like towards the end of uni, you're meant to like do clerkships, yeah. which is like you spend a few weeks. It's like an extended job interview. Yeah. It's like three, four weeks at a law firm and you're trying to suss out if you like them and they're trying to suss out if they like you. And man, I sucked. Like I was so, I hated it and it was obvious. And I did that a few times at a few different law firms. What did you hate about it? Can you remember what it was specifically that you hated about it? Firstly, I think I hated the fact I was like, I'm not like... I'm not doing anything here. Like I'm not creating anything. I, was yeah. like, I felt like all I was doing was making paper. Do you know what I mean? I was like, you make a document, you write a brief that maybe one person will see. Maybe like it just felt so pointless. Mm -hmm. And like, I remember like one task was like, I got to research uh, a law in Canada about the weight of uh, heavy duty trucks and how heavy can a truck be when it crosses from one stadium to another. I was like, surely I didn't, Surely, I don't, surely this is not my career. Like, I don't no. want to do this. It sounds like, what's the point of all this? And so that was probably the main thing that made me hate it. I think the second thing was I'm pretty cocky and pretty arrogant, which I've been trying to manage. And so I always felt like the people that I was working for, I was like, I don't think they're smarter than me, you know? And I was like, I just feel like I can't work with, I can't really work for people because I always feel like, I, I'm, it's very rare for me to find someone who I'm like, oh, that person's way better than me and I can learn heaps from them and they're smarter than me. It's, it's rare for me to find that, which is a shitty thing to say. But um, I've found that it's like, in my experience, it's been hard for me to find that. I know that those people are out there and I've worked with heaps of them. But when I was at these law firms, I always felt like the person that I was who was supervising me wasn't that impressive. And I was like, I don't know wild work for someone who I don't think is that amazing. So if you have that, that sense of confidence about yourself, how do you find yourself in stand-up comedy? Like how does that, how does it go from, you know, not fitting in, which I totally relate to this idea of going, I am good at this thing, but I, I am in this world that you're meant to be in now where, you know, this is what lawyers do. This is the process. Yeah. You know, this is what all the people who've done this have done. You know, they've gone through, you know, some sort of version of this and they will like it. I was working in the Canberra Press Gallery. You know, I was, you know, graduated first in my course at uni. I've been working full time as a journal. I'm getting job offers all over the country. Mm. Like, I should be happy. 
I should be excited about the world that I'm in, but I'm not. I'm bored and I have similar thoughts to you about, you know, the people around me and, you know, uh, what, what gets you from there to the world of stand-up comedy? Well, I, was, I just was desperate to do comedy. I, I put off doing comedy for so long because I didn't want to fail at it. And what I, made you want to do it, though, so desperately? Mostly fear of uh, mediocre life. Right, that I um, I mean that's just the truth. No, that's wanna... a good. I mean it's a it's a cool thing to say. Like I mean it's a brave like yeah. Bra- I want to be honest. To I know because... that a lot of what I'm saying right now probably makes me seem I like not it. very I mean, likable well, to an audience. I, I dig it. Like thing. I mean, and I hope it, I, I hope that people dig that there's a great vulnerability in like at actually saying these things out loud because yeah. I mean it I might would as well be, be honest. It would be very easy for you to. Uh, dismiss these things, you know, to minimize those things, to yeah. not speak honestly about, you know, in, in some ways it's more arrogant to protect the arrogance than it <laughs> is to admit the arrogance. Because one, you know, I think that there is, so I totally get that. You just don't want to, uh, you don't want to live an ordinary life. I yeah. want to do something that it's. There's heaps of people who are having ordinary lives yeah. and I'm not, I don't have any disrespect. It's not a value judgment. <laughs> yeah. Like my well, girlfriend. other than for you. It's a value judgment for you because you don't want to do it. Yeah, that. I just don't want it yes. for me. But my my girlfriend is a lawyer and she works at a law firm and I, I don't know what she does, but she loves it. And I, I'm so impressed by how hard she works and how much she enjoys what she's doing. Like that's... She's very impressive to me. And if you ever have to go across the Canadian border and know uh, <laughs> what weight your truck is. I wouldn't ask her. I think she works on much more important things than that. You'd but I like, could probably I've find I've got this one, love. Yeah, this yeah. Is... <laughs> she, uh, yeah. So she's like, what did you do today? Oh, I actually just did an IPO for a company worth $3 billion. What did you do? Well, actually, did you yeah. know that the when maximum you weight the, of uh, Canadian Alberta, border. Yeah. <laughs> in Alberta, that truck has to be under 3.5 tonnes. Otherwise, you're going to get a hefty fine of $85. And uh, I spent six weeks looking that up. <laughs> anyway, anyway, no, my life is not mediocre. Okay, that's that's what I'm. Doing. So, I mean, I just think for me that, again, maybe uh, probably my childhood. You know, my parents already instilled with me, all, always instilled with me from a young age that I was special. And I know that every parent does that, but I always felt like I was special. Like I was always really smart at school and then did well at uni and. You know, I would do these speeches and we had like a public speaking comp every year at school where you do like a funny speech and people would always laugh at that. And I was like, oh, maybe I've got something special that if I work at, I can do well at. And I was always putting off doing comedy because I was afraid of failure. Like I knew like, oh, if I just do well, I can do well at school, I can do well at uni, I can be a lawyer. And like, I'm sure I could be a good lawyer and succeed at that and, you know, move up the ranks and whatever and have that success. Um, and that would be a way of avoiding of having to confront failing. Um, but then I got to the point where I was like, I've got to eventually, you know, I, I know that I don't want to have that life. And so I've got to overcome this fear of failure. And then I eventually did my, my first open mic, you know, maybe six years ago or so and uh yeah it was failed horribly like just bombed heaps for a while so how do you go with failure because often you know high like you know a bit high functioning people like yourself you know and well i'll, I'll speak from my personal experience yeah. was i think that i wish that i'd failed more early on yeah right i was so afraid of failing that i put so many safeguards around 
it not failing. You know, like whether it wasn't, you know, trying risky enough or new enough material, you know, relying on things that were safer up there. Yeah, do you mean like just keeping it in that world where I loved doing gigs that went well and I wanted to put so many things around those things to make sure that they did well. But what that was really doing was just putting off the inevitable proper failure that you need to do to get better. Yeah. I mean, I at first, and I still am, by the way, terrified of failing but i guess i'm getting better at understanding that failure is necessary it's intrinsic to the process and i guess you know hearing other comedians talk about their failures it really helps me understand that more looking back on how i failed at one gig because i tried a bit but then a few months later that bit came back and now worked and only worked because i bombed a few months ago with it um, seeing that process has been helpful, but having said that, I'm still terrified of failure. You know, it's like, I'm always, cause I think I now kind of define myself through being a comedian. And so if I have a bad gig or I've got a bad show and what people say bad reviews and bad things about it, like it's not just a, a failure, you know, on stage, I feel like I've failed in fulfilling my identity. So... I need to get better at that and uh, separating myself more from my comedy. Yeah. Something good, I'm aware of. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if you've a, achieved You're right. absolutely right. Have you achieved it? You've been doing it for so much No, I don't think so. I think that, you know, and that's why I joke about good luck with that because mm. I think that that is probably the hardest thing to do. I mean, I have a better level of separation, but no, no, no. I still... You know, if somebody doesn't like, you know, my work, it still feels like they don't like me personally. And, yeah, you know, I'm better at dealing with that. But no, I have high expectations for my own work and I'm super aware of when I have failed to meet my own expectations. And I can see the flaws in what I do probably better than anybody else can also, you know, because mm. self-criticism is an integral part of getting better, but also self-criticism can enable you to look at and see the flaws in something that nobody else looks at and sees the flaws. In. I'll, I'll give you a really practical example, mm. right? I have substantially, I'm doing, I'm touring a show that I only did in Melbourne last year. I'm touring it the rest of the country. The show got like four and a half star review in the I paper. The it got like a, yeah, people liked the show. Mm. I just didn't really like, I liked it. Okay. At the time it was brand new and I was just kind of running it in. But when I came back to revisit it, to put it together, to take it out on the road, there was just so much of that show that I just like did not like, you mm. know, did not like by my own standards, could just see the flaws in. And I've done a real lot of work to, no one was asking for me to rewrite that show. Yeah. You know, I could have easily just taken the show that I did in Melbourne and taken it on the road this year. And I think people would have been very happy with that as a show. But I looked at that show and I could see everything that I knew that was wrong with it. And I knew that it was probably two or three months of unnecessary work, you know, yeah. as in like work that no one else was demanding me to do that I would have to do to kind of get this show right. And, you know, I'm currently in the process of doing that and I think I am doing that, but, but, you know, I, 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 there is a self-criticism that comes with that, that is ever present that I can't really step away from. Yeah. I look back on last year's show, the 50, 50 show and there were huge problems in it that, you know, had I taken an extra year, maybe I would have fixed. I don't know. But um, 
I think that's good to know. It's good mm. to know what your mistakes are. It's know? good to know, but I mean, it can become like, I mean, you, 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 when you have the capacity to look at everything that you've done and see all the flaws in it, rather than necessarily all the strengths in it, that can be debilitating as well. Yeah, but I think that's like the paradox of ambition. Right. You know, you want to get better, but then uh. <laughs> the expense of your mental health <laughs> in trying to do all that. Um, uh, what is your greatest strength, do you believe? Oh, it feels like a job interview. Mm. Um, it does a little at the end. I like to ask these ones because it's a, also it's a hard question to ask someone to ask to, to say out loud what they think they're really good at. I think I'm resilient. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm resilient. And I think that uh, it's a value that was instilled with me since I was a kid. Just um, keep pushing through, keep working, and no matter what. And what what are you no good at? What's your weakness? Ugh. I'm pretty selfish. So how does that manifest itself? Your selfishness? You mean self-focused? Yes. Yes. But I think that leads to selfishness because yeah. I I think a lot about myself and uh, what I'm doing and what I want to do and my plans and that can come at the expense of my partner and my family and my friends and things like that. So I I'm aware of that and I I try to catch myself, but. Yeah, but I think also like, you know, I'm early on in my career and from the people I've spoken to, everyone when they're at like, the people I've spoken to are always very selfish and self-focused when they're starting out their career, which I feel like is where I'm still at. So um, I think that's almost a necessity perhaps at this point. And I'm hoping that once I feel more, maybe this will never happen, but I like to think that one day I'll feel more comfortable where I'm at and I'll feel a greater sense of satisfaction and contentment with what I've done where I can be less, where I'll be less self-focused. Mm. I hope that happens. Good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to leave here with no hope You've for my future. You've seen uh, the movie, no, you'll just be doing a podcast like this yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in 20 years and you'll be disillusioning some other yeah. ambitious young man in front of you. Um I uh, you, you, have you seen the movie Groundhog Day? Yeah. Okay. So ironically, quite a few times. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, so you're trapped in one day, and so Bill Murray in that movie, one of the things he manages to do while he's trying to improve as a human being, he also learns how to play the piano. Yeah. Right. You're trapped in living the one day over and over and over again. So you have the time to learn how to do something. What do you learn how to do? Stand up comedy. Oh, interesting. What really? Else, what else would I want to get good at? If there's one thing, is that the Yeah, one? see, but I'm going to say, here's my flaw in that, that if you learn how to, how do you learn how to become good at stand-up comedy in Groundhog Day? Because in Groundhog Day, you're trapped with the same audience over and over again, right? Does that ah. skill translate to the fact that you could then take that out into the real world. You would have learned how to make that crowd laugh really yeah, well, right? That's but it doesn't point. necessarily mean that that skill would be transferable. Yeah, Whereas right. if you learn the piano, you can go and play the piano on another piano. I never thought about that. Well, I mean, answer the question very quickly. Too yeah. quickly, obviously. Um, okay, if not that, I would just learn every language. Good answer. Is like that a good answer? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's a good answer. It's the answer that I give. A lot of the <laughs> oh, time. Is that your answer too? So I love, yeah, I love the idea of being able to um, communicate yeah. in, in all those different languages. One of my main things like, like when I travel yeah. is like I just, I hate not being able to speak to locals and sign language and stuff. And it's just always frustrating because like you just lose so much. I mean, when I, I can speak Hebrew, so when I go to Israel, I'm like, oh, cool. Like I can speak to people and like it's a completely new 
travel experience and then when it's like i don't know i've been to like south america i went to like central america and it was like real i was like oh, i just feel like i'm missing out on so much yeah now speaking every language i think is a what a wonderful thing you know to be able to do mind you it'd be pointless I guess do you eventually get you eventually get out of ground. You eventually get out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it's yeah. If you're in a very <laughs> uh, the one I would uh, I was thinking about this again the other night uh, because I realised that my great passion in life is um, uh, learning. Uh, I love uh, particularly old school American hip hop, but of late there's been so many like you know documentaries. There's a new one about the Wu Tang Clan that's out, yeah. and like so I there's just so much opportunity to learn about that world now yeah. that I think really that I might've wanted to be a rapper. I think if really? I had my time over again, rather than be a comedian, maybe I, that I would have liked to be a rapper. And so I think in Groundhog Day, I might learn how to be a rapper. What would you rap about? Well, I mean, I guess probably the same things I do stand up <laughs> about, right? But... <laughs> Rap about your trip to Wagga Wagga. Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, Wagga rhymes with Wagga. So Wagga rhymes with Wagga, that's fine. I reckon that'd be getting arrested. That seems like a good rapper thing to do, Mate, you know? It's not too late. It's yeah. not too late. Well, I think it is too late. That's, that's that's the problem. This is the final question of this podcast. Thank you so much for giving me... I said I was going to keep it tight because you had a sore voice and then we've just talked for ages. But oh, I have fun. absolutely enjoyed this and thank you for being so generous in your answers. And um, uh, people can see your new show, which is called Getting Better, uh, right around around australia i'll 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 do a proper uh, plug at the top you know so that uh, yeah, it's you totally know, but um, if you forget i'm not fast i'm not gonna forget uh, <laughs> i might forget but i probably won't forget uh it is touring all over australia though where's where's next i don't know when's this coming out but like adelaide adelaide for two weeks adelaide uh, for two weeks where, where are you on in adelaide i'm at uh, gluttony gluttony oh no what time seven o'clock uh i think we might be on at the same time unfortunately which right. is annoying it's gonna split the audience yeah <laughs> Well, that's right. I'm doing a show about getting better from cancer, yeah, which is right. weird because I didn't even have cancer. Yeah, but, you know, it's a new take on it. Man, it's PC madness. It's bit, yeah, what? I can't talk about can't getting better yeah. from cancer just because I didn't have cancer. <laughs> PC gone mad. Uh, so uh, this is the final question of the podcast that I like to ask people. I have a time machine. I do not have a time machine, but mm-hmm. uh, for the purpose of this question, I have a time machine. It is a return trip. Uh, you can go to... Uh, well, I'd prefer you went to a time in your life and either changed or observed it. But if you don't want to answer that, you can go to a time in history and observe it instead. So tell me what you would do with your trip on the time machine. I mean, this is kind of macabre or a bit dark. I would be fascinated to go back to Germany 1930s just because I feel like so much of my history is defined by that period and i think there'd be so much to learn from it i'd also i'd go back if people didn't know i was jewish <laughs> I mean, <yeah. laughs> like uh that would be a prerequisite uh but man i mean that's an interesting time to observe what do you think about the now this is obviously previous to that again but the uh, the, the greatest conundrum that always comes up with time travel is the kill baby hitler yeah. you know what do you do do I kill baby Hitler? Like, do you kill baby Hitler? Do you try to get to Hitler's parents and get them not to fuck in the first place? Does uh, Do you try to meet Hitler at a young age and push him more in the direction of his art and vegetarianism than the hating of Jewish people? You know, like, what, what in that conundrum, you know, in the time travel, you could kill baby Hitler thing, do you kill baby Hitler? I mean, 
I like to think I would. Yeah. But I don't think I'd kill have, a baby. Yeah, I just don't think I have the courage to kill a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have the courage. No, I mean, <laughs> is that? <laughs> So you know, nice. like you, someone's killed their baby. Yeah. You're like, oh, that was a yeah. brave act, wasn't like, it? No, that's... no, no, you don't really normally. <laughs> yeah, I don't think. Um, but I don't yeah. think I could. I guess uh, I think the best thing would be to stop the parents from conceiving yeah. him in the first place. There you go. Yeah, yeah. That's my way of getting out of this. Go back, seduce Hitler's mum. <laughs> yes, that's the only way out of you this. Fuck or dad. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, it doesn't matter as long as they don't fuck each other. <laughs> Look, I'll be <laughs> fucking Hitler's dad. It's in this yeah. I kill your baby, mate. Yeah. Like, so right. it's. You'll never know what my new show, Fucking Hitler's Dad, is all about. But anyway, it's great. It's coming, into, coming around Australia in 2021. Mate, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, mate.